Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack. And Sean Chapman. We are here, as always, to talk about stuff this week with Digimon music as our opening. Yes, it's been a long time coming, I've thought. I think so, too. So, I, as you know, Sean's been playing Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, and then I started playing Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. And finally, I loved the music for that game so much, I'm like, there's a soundtrack for this, right? And there is, but as with most video game soundtracks, it's not out in America. Yeah. So you got to get it from Japan. And you can't download music from Japan because you can't go to like iTunes Japan without a Japanese mailing address, which I do not have. So I bought you the gotta phys- hook yourself up, bro. So I had, I know, I got the physical CD edition of Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, the soundtrack. And then you found is- some sort of antiquated ancient tome in which to place the CD so it could transcribe. <laughs> The, the the music on the CD into it's called some a, sort of MP3 or something of that nature. It's called a CD drive. I have one. I've had one oh. for a while. Anyway, it's three CDs, and they package it kind of weirdly shiny. You can see here, it's got that normal flap for two CDs, but then the yeah. third is just on the back. Yeah, you know, you got to do something. It's a, You have an odd yeah. number of CDs. You're going to have to put it in an odd way. It's got awesome art. It's a great... I've listened to the first, like, one and a half discs, and I've sampled stuff throughout, but I was listening to it at work today just... Like, it's really good music. I know we've talked last week on the podcast about how great the music in Digimon Story is. Yeah. But just on its own, you get even more of an appreciation. It's a damn good soundtrack yeah. for a damn good game. I am now on Chapter 14. Okay, so you've hit, you've hit the middle game where you, shit hits the fan point. You weren't kidding. Right? Shit hits the fan. It gets serious. <laughs> and then there's, like, the whole other half of the game left. So yeah, it's not it, like shit gets, hits the fan in, like, like, in like Persona 3... It's like when you get to January. That's right. like it has that sort of like climactic shift in terms of like things that are happening in the world. It's like Digimon hits that point like halfway through the fucking game. It's great. And I got to a point around chapter 10 where I knew the game wasn't about to end because I knew it had 20 chapters from what you told me. Yeah. But it felt like we were leading to the conclusion basically of the game. And they totally could have just turned those events into some kind of ending. Yeah. But no, it's basically the start of a whole new half. Basically, this game at this point, story-wise, feels to me like a really good season of anime. Yeah. yeah definitely. Like you're just playing through a great anime season... And it's getting crazier the further it goes. But still, like, with consistently great pace. That's something that game has that we haven't talked about much. It's the rare JRPG where it's really tough to get bored playing it. Because there's so many things to do. It feels like Persona in that way where they took a genre that has definitely the trappings of ways where you can kind of... It can feel dull or repetitive. And it's all just laid out and paced in a way where it never really does. Yeah, and it has a good handling of the shifts in the tone of the game, which is basically what we're talking about when you hit that chapter 10 point and, like, things get serious, is that up to that point, like, there's some dark-ish stuff that is happening in the background, but it's generally the game has a fairly light comic tone to it, and then it's sort of that transitions into a much more serious character drama and much more serious stakes for the characters, and that, like... I think they they give both of those halves like the right amount of time to give that sense of pace to it, where it's like by the time you're kind of getting tired with the the lighthearted comic stuff and you want to see like these characters get pushed to a more serious place, that's when the game does that, you know? Yes, absolutely. It it is such a damn good game, and I have a so two we we uh, as you might have you know heard on the last couple of weeks we did we have not recorded for two weeks even yeah. though there was a show last week. So this is the first time you and I have talked in two weeks. And two weeks ago, I forget which episode it was, but you asked me if I had a favorite Digimon so far. Yeah. 
And I think at the time I kind of... I think it was Gargamon. It was Gargamon, because I wasn't... And I hadn't played enough to really be sure. I have an answer for you now. Okay. It's Growlmon. And it's, Gra- yeah. and it's Growlmon because he's awesome as Growlmon, but he digivolves into War Growlmon, <laughs> and I fucking love War Growlmon. Yeah, War he, Growlmon's pretty good. I have kept War Growlmon around a very long time because he is so awesome. And in both forms, he's kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He's effective because of his type combination. There's a lot of different Digimon. Yeah. But War Growlmon, man, he's the shit. Yeah, love he's him. like special move that does that like charge. It's kind of yep. like almost like a Hyper Blast-esque it's, move. It's awesome. Yeah, no... See, what's interesting about that, Jonathan, is that both Gargamon and Growlmon are from the same Digimon show. They're both from Digimon. Interesting. The third one, I think, is called Digimon Tamers. So you should probably watch that one. Okay. That's the one. If you you want to watch some Digimon, that is the one to watch. Yes, I've... I've, For you, evidently, at least. I've had inklings in the back of my mind playing this game that I should probably watch a Digimon show now. Although I'm not sure where I would start or what... where I would get it. I know. I, don't I know. know but... The dubbed Digimon Adventures is on Netflix. Yes. I don't yeah. know how much I would get out of that version, not being a kid. But we'll. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They like that was you know an old '90s kids anime. Yeah. It's got an old '90s kids anime dub. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So maybe if but I you can it... get that hot, hot like late '90s Digimon anime music that is like <laughs> the most awful like techno rap fusion. They probably. Just Bleeding out of your ears, kind of music possible. They probably replaced the score in America. I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yes, yes the okay. music in the Japanese Digimon. When like after I watched that like Digimon Adventure Try, which is only available in Japanese, where they've like brought the characters back and they're using what I now know is like the Japanese music or some of like the Japanese themes. It's like oh. Wow, they have much better... Like, this music in the Japanese version of the show aged a billion times better than the weird techno rap thing for whatever Four Kids was doing. Also known as the Dragon Ball Z effect. Yeah. Anyway. It's way more severe than that, though. Like, it is way... Like, like the English Dragon Ball Z music is a billion times better than English Digimon music. I believe it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, anyway, that's our Digimon talk for this week. Maybe we'll do a little more later. I don't know. This game is great. I'm glad we can just keep it going and keep it going. Uh, this week on the show, sorry for that Digimon-related uh, chant in there. Never apologize for Digimon. Sorry, I didn't. I'm not apologizing for Digimon. I just mean we maybe I should have saved it until I told the the fine listeners what we were going to talk about this week. We are going to do kind of a random stuff episode. We've got to catch up on things. We've got lots of news. We've got movie trailers. Sean has played Dark Souls three. Yes, I'm I'm a fair bit into it at this point. Fair bit into that. There was some big news this week in a couple different avenues. One of which I think we will turn into a topic this week, which is Microsoft has officially ended. Production of the Xbox 360, which is a fairly major moment in the life and now death span of a generation. Yeah. And we need to talk about that. Um, we will. I will say this up front. By the time you hear this episode, you all, the listeners, will know who the new companion is on Doctor Who. Yes. Because on Saturday, April 23rd, uh, in, in England, they're going to be announcing the new companion, and that will be cool, but we are recording this on Friday evening, the 22nd, yes. and just because I have kind of a busy weekend, part of which is normally we record this on a Sunday night. This Sunday night is the Game of Thrones premiere, and I'm watching that with my brother and stuff, so all right, gotta, gotta watch Game of Thrones, and, and maybe after the premiere we can go back to Sunday nights and I'll just watch it later, yeah. but you know, I, we've got to figure out how they're bringing Jon Snow back to life, because they're doing it. Ain't no one believing that shit that he's dead. Yeah, that's crazy. Sean doesn't like it. I Game can't believe Jon Snow. Yeah. It's okay. Is he a character or is he a pop star? I can't tell. He, both. Ah. Yeah. Nice. I should probably watch Game of Thrones at some point. He is the pop star of the 
of the world. You know Rishé in uh, Persona yes. 4? No. Well, who is this? What is this Persona 4 of which you speak, Jonathan? <laughs> All right. Let's not go down that rabbit yeah. hole. Anyway, very excited to see who the new Doctor Who companion will be. Mostly, I, I think am... it's going to be Jon Snow. I feel like, I've, you know, these sources are not confirmed yet, but they're pretty reliable. I think Jon Snow, the character... Is yes. just going to be like they're just going to take the character. Well, anyway, we are going to talk about that next week on the show, and I think that will be fun. My real hope, though, is that it's someone we have all never heard of because yeah. that's every modern Doctor Who companion except Catherine Tate, totally unknown, and they make good companions that way. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm really curious about is if they're going to say anything other than this is the actress who's going to be the next companion on Doctor Who, because if that's all they say, there's really not much to talk no. about in that regard. But if there's, like, some minor details on the character or that even, is not just, hey, she's a contemporary 20-something-year-old London girl. Like, I, okay. I'd also like to know when we're going to meet her, whether it's at Christmas or in the season premiere. Right, yeah. That would be kind of interesting to know, because we keep saying we're getting no Doctor Who this year. Mostly true, but we do have the Christmas special. Yes. So, indeed, Doctor Who could be on my top ten this year. It would have to have a really good Christmas special, but it could make it. Yeah. Hopefully. hopefully. Or maybe it's good enough that I could put on my top ten movies list or something. Hey, man, there you go. it's your rules. Doctor you Who put will. Doctor Who where you need to <laughs> to get it on one of those lists. All right. I was, I was kind of funny because I was looking at my top ten TV list from last year, and I think the top seven shows, none of them will be on TV this year. Huh. Except for one, The Leftovers. Everything else is either done or it's taking the year off. Like Doctor Who and Fargo and a couple of those. Um, or like Mad Men, Parks and Rec. They're all done. So, a Hannibal. But yeah, so anyway, it's just kind of funny. My top ten will look very different this year. Yeah. But can I talk about TV for a minute? Go ahead. Yeah, I yeah. have not watched anything TV related in a while. So. Well, but I've, you know, I've given you guys updates um, for a while here on two shows that I really love that I've been watching. And there's been a couple others this year. Like, I haven't talked about the People vs. O.J. Simpson show. That was fantastic. That finished a few weeks ago. Definitely seen a lot of good TV this year. This year in TV, I assume, will be, in many ways, just as difficult to make a top ten list out of as last year was. Just, there's some new stuff, too. But um, two of the shows I'm loving this year were shows I loved last year, and they both finished their seasons this week on the same night. So I thought uh, I would talk about them a little bit. The first being Supergirl. Yes. I've taught Supergirl. I love me some Supergirl. Supergirl had a really good finale, and people don't give that show enough credit. That's the base. That's like my thesis here. Okay. But like that show had a clunky finale. I won't deny that. But I've seen way clunkier TV finales, especially when they involve superheroes. Right. Yeah. Look at The Flash season one. It's got some good stuff, but goddamn, is that a clunky finale? Supergirl season one. It's clunky in plot in certain plot ways, but never in a way that like. Makes you feel like the characters are breaking character or anything like that. It doesn't violate any of the main rules I, I have for TV finales. So, you know, clunky in some plot ways. But I really thought emotionally they nailed everything they had to. They had every character of note from that season there at the end in ways that tied up their individual character arcs, which was great. And just in a lot of ways where that show is, a to me, a very impressive balancing act. And I know some people don't love some parts of the show. And to you I say, that's awful because it's fun. And it's comic booky, and you should just enjoy it. But anyway, yes, um, because people can't have differing opinions on things. Jonathan. No, that's okay. It just it does feel sometimes like there's a I don't know, maybe a I don't know how to say this weird double standard with Supergirl. I hear sometimes where it's like basically the part of the show some people have trouble with is that she has this double life where she is Supergirl and she works at a newspaper. And to me, that's a kind of thing that superhero like live action stuff never gets to even do. Right, a yeah. little bit in the Spider Man movies. 
And even then, by Spider-Man 3, that's really gone, you know. Um, yeah, like, the live-action secret identity stuff has never been a big thing other than in, like, Spider-Man 2 in particular. Yeah, and I think Supergirl does it really well. And yes, is the drama at the newspaper office fairly different than the drama at the Department of Extraterrestrial Operations? Yes, but that's kind of interesting to me. That's kind of the contrast, and it's funny to me because everyone always wants, you know, Superman to be, like, you know human and relatable and stuff, and Supergirl found a way to do that in a really interesting way, while also having the big moral conversation Zack Snyder is very afraid to have in his Superman movies. So, and it really is funny, I've said this time and again, season one of Supergirl has all these moments that feel like they are metatextually commenting on Man of Steel, and the finale was the hardest version of that yet, because it is all about... The la- I say the finale, it's really the last two episodes are kind of a two-parter. Right. And part of the dilemma is Supergirl has the chance to save the day by committing murder, and she ultimately does not do that. And there's a Good. conversation about that, and wa- and the, like, the pluses and minuses, not just no or not just yes. It's an actual conversation that happens in the episode with characters who have built been built up over time in interesting ways, and it is an actual moral conversation that happens, not just next snap, go. Yeah, it's not just, yeah, Batman's not killing people because it was technically the flamethrower guy's fault that his flamethrower was on him <laughs> while it exploded. Not Batman's fault for shooting the flamethrower. I just give Supergirl a lot of credit for all those things. I really do think the finale had so many good moments in it and really ended in a way that felt very satisfying to me and felt like the season-long journey had been worth it, in addition to all the great individual moments there were along the way. And you can't ask for anything more than that in some cases. There was even, you know, the, the character I'm talking about who is part of the should we murder conversation is a character from the comics who's in this called Maxwell Lord. Yeah. And he's a really interesting character in this show. Like, he starts out just kind of as a mustache-twirling villain, basically their version of Lex Luthor. And a much better Lex Luthor than Jesse Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg was not Lex Luthor. Okay. We're not even, it's not even, doesn't even count. Doesn't even count. All right. Uh, anyway, but over the course of the season, I thought they did some really interesting things with Maxwell Lord, his relationship with Supergirl, Supergirl's attitude towards him, and by the end, turned him around in a way where, you know, he kind of becomes an ally, but kind of not, but it's not just your typical, like, enemies become friends. It's a very interesting arc for that character, and really for all the characters. I think that is such a great show. If you have not had the chance to watch it, I hope it goes up on some streaming service over the summer, and I hope more people watch it. And I also hope it gets a second season. It hasn't formally been renewed. I don't, I can't imagine why they would cancel it. It does well. And I feel like even if CBS doesn't want it, it would probably just go to the CW. Because yeah. fuck it, CW's already got three superhero shows, and The Flash has already been on yeah, Supergirl. exactly. And I feel like it would almost be make a bit more sense for it to be on the CW, so... I think it would make a lot more sense for the show where the characters cross over to all be on the same network. But yes. I don't know. Like, I find that's, like, the thing about Supergirl that confuses me the most is, like, how, what, why, just put them all on the same network. That yeah. makes sense to me. I think they, you know, were thinking Supergirl would be a bigger tent show. And it has gotten higher ratings than any of the CW shows, mostly just by virtue of being on CBS. Yeah. Um, and technically, she is on a different Earth than The Flash. So. Oh, so he has to cross like dimensional. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that part of the yeah. crossover. So that makes it a little more. It makes it okay. make a little more sense. Yeah. So that's why Arrow has never crossed over so far, like or no. like the the story reason for why. Yes, they could find a way to do it. You know, the Flash can take Arrow through a dimensional barrier. That would yeah. be fun. I, I actually think Stephen Amell's Arrow or Robbie Amell, which Amell is it? Both of them are on the CW 
superhero shows, and I can't remember which Amel cousin it is. Anyway, I think it's Stephen Amel as Arrow. He would be very funny playing opposite Melissa Benoist's Supergirl. Anyway, so Supergirl, really good show, really good comic book show. If you hate Batman v Superman as much as we do, I think you would love this show. And if you love Batman v Superman, you are the scum of the earth. <laughs> Wait till I talk about my trip to New York for oh, further issues on that discussion. Oh, God. No, I did, I did meet someone in the wild this week who loved that movie. That's, that's how you meet them, Jonathan, in and, the wild. And, and tried to explain to me how it's... You know, it's really deep because it treats Superman like he's an alien and really asks whether or not he has morality. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Why, why, you are reading a lot into that movie. Yeah. At what point does it do that? When Superman makes the pouty face? Is and that when that happens? When Superman spends hours at a time not talking and not having lines? It's when he walks into the tub with Lois Lane, I think, is when it's really interrogating <laughs> the, the, the moral questions behind this Superman do you fuck your girlfriend in a tub or do you not? Who knows? I mean, you do. That's how right. that's how Superman rolls. Yes, indeed. So, Supergirl's good. Even better, of course, is Better Call Saul, which also finished its first season on AMC. Uh, fantastic show. I have talked at length about how much I love this series. Spinoff of Breaking Bad, which I've been rewatching, and I've gotten to my favorite parts of Breaking Bad, which I've really only seen once, seasons three and four. And good God, that show's even better than I remember it. But anyway, that's a story for another day. Yeah. Better Call Saul finished its second season. And just brilliant. I Just brilliant. I really, in the end, kind of regret I didn't take the time to write about this show on Monday nights. And by the end, I didn't feel like I wanted to just kind of out of the blue write something because it would have had to be many pages long to cover the whole season. Right. But that show, this second season, every episode was a complete home run. Every episode was so rich and beautifully crafted. And I think that's something Breaking Bad in its best seasons you could absolutely say of, too. But there's just something about the concentration of this show, the small cast, the absolutely slow pace that I love. And I'm saying slow in the best way possible because we use slow as a pejorative so much. But when done right, that kind of pace is, is so fulfilling. And Better Call Saul does it absolutely right. And it had this finale that... If you actually look at the amount of incident that happens in that finale, it's almost nothing. Like, very little happens in the end of that season. If you look at the overall arcs for those characters, just in terms of quote-unquote story, very little happens. You know, like for Mike, for instance, who kind of has a parallel story with Saul slash Jimmy, Mike's whole problem is he wants to make money for his family, he runs into a certain enemy, and he has to get himself out of a bad scenario. And that's kind of the whole story of the season. And yet within that, so much character development happens because you are telling this you know, Greek tragedy story, basically, where you have Jimmy McGill, who's going to become Saul Goodman, who is a heartless lawyer. And you have Mike Ehrmantraut, who is going to become the fixer that we know from Breaking Bad, who really has lost his soul at this point. And that is not a happy journey to walk, and yet it is such a fascinating journey. And it is because they're not, neither of them become monsters in the way like Walter White does. Walter White right. on Breaking Bad becomes a very quickly larger than life Western figure. He, he very quickly becomes Lex Luthor. <laughs> I know. We, we're, we're just wanting the Brian Cranston plays Lex Luthor scenario. Yeah, it is so obvious, and yet somehow they didn't do it. I'm glad he's not in the Zack Snyder I mean, movies. Yeah, but it would have at least, there would have been something I liked about it. Yes, I guess so. Anyway, um, what was I saying? So, but, but you know, Jimmy and Mike, their, their moral dilemmas are so small and human scale. And there were so many parts of season two in particular where I felt for both of them, Jimmy in particular, in ways. And I was like, 
identifying with these characters in ways I so rarely do just in fiction in general, because I think the things they're going through about, you know, wanting to be in a certain place in the world and maybe getting there and not feeling like it's what you always wanted. And that is such an interesting dilemma that I think most people are going to run into at one yeah. point in their lives. And the show did such a good job with that. And the finale, as I said, very small, very quiet. Not a lot of incident happens in it, and yet it feels like the absolute perfect conclusion to that season. Absolutely proves that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould and company are in this one for the long haul, which I am excited for. They are not in any hurry to get where they're going. If anything, this one makes me wonder... Are they going to need like more time than Breaking Bad did to tell this story? Because I always thought when Better Call Saul started, there's no way they do six seasons of this, right? Yeah. And now I'm thinking, they could definitely do six seasons. They might need to do more than that. It's, it's a really interesting way they've paced this and gotten slower and slower as time goes on. Because, frankly, you need that amount of time to tell the story they're telling. Um, I mean, just if you consider Breaking Bad takes place total in a span of two years and... Better Call Saul picks up five years before Breaking Bad. If they moved at that same pace, they would do like 30 seasons of this thing. Right. Eventually. And I think both seasons of Better Call Saul combined are like, I don't, six months? I don't know. It can't even be that long at a certain point. It's crazy. But anyway, very good show. There is a sequence in the finale with Mike out in the desert. And if you've seen it, you know what I mean. That is 100% on par with like the best of the Coen brothers in like No Country for Old Men in just silent music-free tension that is so phenomenal. It's amazing how far everyone on that show has come just in their visual and aesthetic power. Um, but yeah, I love that show, and I keep saying I don't necessarily want to say it's better than Breaking Bad yet, but here's the thing. Season 1 of Better Call Saul, 100% better than Season 1 of Breaking Bad, and that's maybe a little unfair. Season 1 of Breaking Bad is not a complete season. They got cut off halfway through because of the writer's strike, the, they were still kind of figuring it out, so, you know, give them that one. Season 2 of Better Call Saul, also better than Season 2 of Breaking Bad, which is the season where Breaking Bad really started to get great. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, like, okay, well, that's two seasons it has been better than the parent show. At a certain point, we are going to have to have that conversation. And I think I know where my vote would go, even though I love both of these shows. And as I've said before, I kind of view them at this point as one big anthology. Um, but great show. If anything else is my number one this year, I would be surprised. Awesome. Especially with, like, as I said, everything else off the air this yeah. year. Like Doctor Who and what. And so I would... Wait for that goddamn Christmas special, man. Yeah. No, I mean, I would have to be surprised because it would have to, frankly, be something new. Because a lot of the shows I watched are off this year. So yeah. it'll be interesting. But that's my TV talk. What do you have, Sean? Oh, man. I, I went to New York City. You went to New York? I went to New York City. What Broadway show did you see? Uh, all of them. I went and saw Phantom of the Opera. I saw Wicked. I saw Hamilton. That's one. That's happening. <laughs> you got tickets to Hamilton? That's crazy. No. <laughs> I've, I'm lying. I did not do any of those things. I did not peruse any of the various you, musicals on Broadway. You and I were talking about this before the, the show, because I've been making that Broadway joke just because Sean hates musicals. Um, we were saying... You know, I wanted to... I'm right to hate musicals. It's fine. They're, they're awful. Okay. <laughs> And you were saying, you know, you saw the ads for Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Because Phantom of the Opera literally has not stopped playing on Broadway since it debuted 25 years ago. Yeah, More than no, that now, 30 years. God. And here's the funny thing. I learned this the other day, Sean. Did you yeah. know Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a sequel musical to Phantom of the Opera? Yes, Love I Never do. Dies? Yeah. Did you know that never made it to Broadway? Really? Oh, <laughs> yes. I didn't know that part. It, it got, as far as it got, was off Broadway, and it was so shitty, it never actually got to Broadway. 
It is the Batman to Superman of the musical world. Yeah, I mean, that's like, Love Never Dies, like, that's, I actually kind of want to watch that because I, like, I remember reading the plot synopsis Oh, it's of hilarious. It. And just the idea, the fucking sheer, like, consumerist gall to make a fucking sequel to your hit shit Broadway musical adaptation of this, like, kind of fun horror, like, French horror novel that has a really good silent movie adaptation. Like, how do you make a sequel to that? What, that's like fucking, making like a different like Lion King 2 or something musical only thing. That's not just an adaptation of the actual Lion King 2, the canonical Lion King 2 that we all know and love, that we all own the VHS of. It would be really funny because Lion King 2 uses a bunch of music that was written for the Broadway show. I didn't, yeah. Yeah, so it would be kind of funny if they did it. it would, they would be so cheap. They could just use the Broadway show and just now call it Lion King 2. Same music. Yes. Anyways, fuck musicals. Fuck Love Never Dies. Fuck Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like, fuck all of that. Like, go watch, like, the fucking old fan we, of the opera. We just lost our entire 16-year-old girl choir fan base. Good. <laughs> Good. I want them. Go read fucking Twilight or whatever... I don't know, like it's, there's no new young adult hit. Go watch that, like... I can't, don't even remember the... Divergent? Name. Yeah, Divergent, yeah. Like, the weird, whatever... The, the death knell of that genre of film that, that Harry Potter, like, spewed forth from the bowels of Satan. That's all over. Anyways, New York City has nothing to do with any of that stuff. If you want to go see a musical, more power to you. I did not. Because I just didn't want to. But New York City... I don't know how much I want to talk about like what I did on the trip because we were there for like five days, so we did a lot. But I'll just like talk about some of the highlights. First up, my first night there, we we fly in. It's like a four hour flight. We like take a taxi into Manhattan because we we were on Manhattan the whole day and basically or the whole time we were we were there. I was with my family and we basically went there to visit my brother because he's been in New York City for about a year now. Because he got a job working for Anheuser-Busch up there. So that was, like, basically the reason why I went on the trip was to visit him and, like, see where he works, see where he lives and stuff like that. And so when we get into Manhattan, it was, like, 8 o'clock at night or something by the time we checked into our hotel. And so we wanted to go, like, so my mom and I, like, went out to go, like, to a grocery store because... It, like New York City is such a dense city that if you want to find anything, you can basically just pick a random direction and walk in that direction for about three minutes, and you will run into whatever it is you're looking for. If you want like Italian food, you'll find it. If you want Chinese food, you'll find it. If you want a grocery store, you'll find it. If you want like a fucking strip club, you'll find it. Like whatever drugs, yeah, what is the, yeah, like any need you need fulfilled can be fulfilled within three minutes of any street block in New York City. They should put that on like the signs when you drive in. But so we we went out on the street to go find uh, a grocery store, which I was like, it was a weird experience going to the grocery store because I don't know if this is common to all. Because it's like, because since it's a big city, it's not like a grocery store in the way that like people, we live in Colorado, we think of like a grocery store as like a big fucking like Target or something. Like obviously in like the city, it's like a mix between what you'd think of out here as a grocery store and what like a 7-Eleven is. And so, like, uh, and which uh, for obvious reasons, but then so, like, their selection is limited. What was weird, and I don't know if all of their grocery stores like this is there, is that, like, their selections were completely limited for everything except for beer. There was, like, an entire aisle with every single beer imaginable on the planet. It was ridiculous. They had more, 
They had more beer there than any other, like, item for sale. It was fucking, it's, I have no idea why. It was so weird. But so we went there, we got, like, just, like, some snacks and normal stuff, like some soda to take back to the room, because you're not going to drink the soda they have in a hotel, because it's, like, three, literally it was three dollars a can. It's just, like, that's not... New York living. That's, yeah. The prices in New York are already ridiculous. The hotel prices in New York for specific items are, like, a further degree more ridiculous than that. Anyways, on the way back from the grocery store, I was, as you know, Jonathan, I own, as I am wearing right now, I am wearing a Captain America t-shirt. A lot of my t-shirts are superhero paraphernalia because I don't care about, like, my fashion, and I like superheroes, and it's easy to find superhero t-shirts. So that is, like, the, the path I've chosen in life, and I, I, I wear it proudly. And on that particular occasion, I was wearing a Superman t-shirt. And so we were walking back to the hotel room. Again, this is my first night in New York City. It, like, it's at night. We're walking back. We're, like, basically a block away from the hotel. And then this random guy on the street just stops me and is like, Hey, Superman, man! I, I saw that Batman v Superman movie. And you know what? The critics, the critics, they don't like that movie. They don't like that movie. But that's a good movie. I like that movie. They say, like, the editing's... Bad. They say the editing's weird. It's like every movie. The editing's not perfect. It's a movie, but it's like you know what? Like I had fun. I, I liked that movie. I enjoyed that movie. It's like I, I understand the critics don't, but it's like man, it's like Batman. It's like Superman. It's like my boy Superman's in that movie. It's like I'm just standing there, like holding like two fucking grocery bags in each hand. You know, it's like there's like with like liquid in them, and anyone who's had to like carry grocery bags any distance knows. As soon as you're, like, hauling liquid anywhere, you just want to get where you're going because now the bag's digging into my hands. And I don't want to just be rude and, like, blow this guy off. And I'm certainly not going to share my, like, legitimate opinions on Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice on the side of the street in New York City at, like, 10 o'clock at night with some random dude I've never met before. You so, probably get stabbed. Maybe. Who knows? But it's, like, just... He went on for, like, three or five fucking minutes just talking, like, and I would just interject with, like, yeah, I guess Ben Affleck was pretty good when you'd be like, and man, Ben Affleck, my boy Ben Affleck, like, man, he's, like, he's the best, he's the best movie Batman. Like, you know, I like the Christopher Nolan stuff. I like Christian, like, the weirdest thing was this dude would seem super well-versed in, like, <laughs> it wasn't just, like, someone being like, I like the action in the movie. He was like, I thought Michael Keaton was pretty good. I like. I mean, you know, like he's not the best Batman. The suit was kind of stiff. It's like, man, he had that crazy shit, man. He like like smashed that bass. Like he was fucking crazy. I like Michael Keaton, okay. But it's like, man, Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck in this movie, man, he's so good. He's just like, that's my Batman. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's like that's my Batman. It's like when I'm reading the Batman comics now, it's like that's Ben Affleck Batman. Like he fucking gets it, man. It's like <laughs> went on for like five goddamn minutes talking about Batman. And be Superman, Don, just as in it, superb detail. How old is this guy? Oh, he was like in his 30s. He was like well older than I was. Now, I have a working theory. I think that's the age that likes ba- everyone I've met and everyone I, I'm guessing most people who are dicks online are about that age. So, yeah, I think that might be. And I'm sure this guy's not a dick or anything, but you know. No, he seemed like a nice dude. He just seemed a bit. He needed to talk to. No one else in the world liked that movie, so he has to talk to someone. And it's like, you know. When when you're walking down the street wearing the crest representing Superman, it's like sometimes you get someone to come out and it's like you, you like that guy and you get to have a nice chat about Superman. Sometimes a random person assaults you on the side of the street with their opinions on Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice, which are very different from your own personal opinions on Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice, it, making the entire conversation extremely awkward from my point of view. 
Oh, I here, here's how I walked into it this week because I was someone at work basically who had come into the office, and I know this person, but uh, and he had all over his computer like he's got a MacBook, you know, and all over it Batman and Superman stickers and shit. Yeah, and I knew this guy like just from his email address and stuff and his username online. He he. Is all Superman and Batman themed. Okay. He loves these characters. So I asked him, like, what did you think of the movie? Because I assumed he was going to say he didn't like it and then we could make fun of it. And I was like, nope, he really liked it. And I'm like, <sighs> oh, fuck, I walked into this. And same thing, he went on for like five minutes explaining why it's like, he's like automatically on the defensive. Yeah, that's exactly how this dude was. Like, he was like, I think he just assumed since I was wearing a Superman t-shirt that automatically meant I liked any movie that had Superman in it. And yeah. so, like, he just saw... It's like, I get it. Like, I sometimes I like stuff that, like, the general opinion is very negative about. I get that sense of, like, when you find someone else that's, like, you're, like, an ally in this. Like, we stand yeah. together. I'm like, that movie's pretty good. I do not stand together with that guy. In fact, like, my wearing that Superman shirt is in stark defiance of Batman v Superman. Donald Man, Justice. why couldn't you be wearing, like, an Agumon shirt and be on the street and someone be like, Hey, you played Digimon Story? Yeah, I did! Yeah. Isn't that a great game? Except for in this, this scenario, like, the only way it ever works out is that the random guy stops and he's like, Man, I hate Digimon Story, Cyber <laughs> Sleuth. Like, you know, the turn-based combat this is fucking bullshit. Take three Digimon into battle, it should only be one Digimon. Like, what? what is this bullshit? It should only have four moves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pokemon fanboy. No, anyway, uh, what else did you do in New York? Were you there for the primary? No, we left right before the primary happened. We okay. got to catch some like really awful CNN like political debates. That's like, man, televised political debates are terrible, worthless. Yes, especially when you, on our democracy. Yeah, especially when you let. An audience, a live studio audience, like it's an episode of fucking Full House or something, <laughs> in on the debate. Like, the debates are already terrible because there's, like, because the viewers might not know this, Jonathan, you and I, we, we, we took debate for four years yes. in, in college, is what, like, hardened and solidified our friendship together. Yes. And it was the birth, really, of this podcast in a lot of different ways. And so... I feel like we know a little something about debating. Yes. It's like, man, when you watch these TV debates, it's like everything from the questions to the presentation to the just the general etiquette is all terrible. And then when you throw on, like, terrible, like, applause cues, what are you doing? What are you doing? I don't, what, am, what was I, I doing? It's especially worthless right now just in our current state of our democracy because on the Republican side, you just have a bunch of old white guys yelling at each other. Yeah. Or you have, on the Democratic side, two old people impolitely agreeing with each other. Exactly, because it's like you have to manufacture some sort of like intense, violent disagreement, even when both of the candidates are basically on the same point with each other. They yes. still have to be aggressive, because you still need to get that audience to go like, woo! You know, you gotta do that. Anyway, and I just... there was, So there I was, like, sitting in, like, on my stupid ass in the New York City hotel room at 10 o'clock at night, watching a fucking political debate because I'm sorry on, man on the, the, the TV I don't even know why I was doing it but yeah hotels you watch shit in hotels you wouldn't normally watch it's a weird effect I mean it's because like I in my normal everyday life I'm so disconnected from television networks in general that it's not an experience I normally get to have and it was like 
And every, like, because it was so close to the primaries, like, every taxi cab, like, every Uber, we got to experience the Uber and all that stuff. Oh, boy. The the modern world of of public transportation, which is also, like, a capitalist fucking wet dream, because you you get a bunch of people that have no means of, like, unionizing together and, like, fighting for their own rights. It's like, would you really think about Uber? Which I got to spend a lot of time sitting in the back of some dude's car thinking about, like... What Uber is? When you really think about it, it's super fucked up. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. Anyways, like every every like radio station, and everything was constantly playing ads for like like different Hillary Clinton, different right. Bernie Sanders, like Democratic primary stuff in general. Like almost never heard anything about the Republican primary. Since, well, and it's I mean New York City is a very Democratic city, right. so it makes sense. But there's I mean there were counties in the Republican primary where like eighty people voted. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, but yeah, so that all that shit was like sort of like tinging the background of the of the New York City trip. Luckily. Thank fucking God I got out of there before the primaries happened. That would have just been a nightmare. Like, I already hate being around any sort of, like, large political event in my life in, like, the state I actually live in, in which I have some sort of stake. Like, I have have some sort of theoretical stake in what's going on there politically. I don't want to be wrapped up in that shit in some state that, like, I'm not involved. I'm just here to visit my brother for a few days. Like, don't I don't want to be swarmed on the street with like a bunch of people trying to get me to sign shit and have to explain that I I don't live here. Don't ask me to sign stuff. I spent too much time doing that in college, so avoided that pretty neatly. The other stuff we did uh, that's worth talking about. Like, honestly, it was a lot of sort of like walking around and sort of admiring the city because it is a really remarkable city. Like, if you're someone who has any sort of, like, interest in architecture, even, like, sort of, like, the, it's just the, the pure aesthetics of it or, like, just, like, a little bit of the history of it is a really cool city to just walk around in because every single city block, there is some crazy, like, Victorian Gothic-style church or something that has, like... We went into one that had, like, a 24-karat gold mosaic on the ceiling that was pretty incredible and stuff like that. So just walking around the city composed the bulk of my time there, which is also nice because it's been, like... I wasn't just sitting on my ass the entire time, which like happens sometimes when you're, you go on like trips and vacations and stuff. But we we did like a bunch of the normal touristy stuff, like we went to the Statue of Liberty, which that's actually more like it's more interesting than you think it would be because like obviously my parents really wanted to go see it because even though my mom is actually from New York State, she's not from New York City, but she's from like the upper New York State. She'd never been to the Statue of Liberty, so she wanted to go see it, and I was like. I don't need to go stand on the island where the Statue of Liberty is because that's like that in and of itself does not constitute for me like something that that's that is that interesting because you're born in America already like with the Statue of Liberty imprinted on your iris you know like it's like super so iconic I mean even around the world but if you get the tickets that allow you to go into the Statue of Liberty pedestal because there's basically three tiers of tickets there's you just get to go to Liberty Island there's you get to go into the pedestal where there's like a museum or you get, like, if you can buy the tickets, like, a year out or something like that, you get to, like, take an elevator up to the crown. Of and that's where you see the beating heart thing, right? Yes, that's, yeah, okay. that's where, yeah, you get to look up under the Statue of Liberty skirt, and yeah, yeah, that's where all that happens. So we got the pedestal tickets, and we went in, and the museum that they have in the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty is actually really cool. It's really well done. They have a lot of really interesting stuff there. I got to think a lot in while I was walking around there about oxified copper, because... <laughs> Because that's what, I mean, it's something that I knew but had kind of forgotten about is that the Statue of Liberty is made out of copper. And anyone who's like remembers their high school chemistry will remember that when copper rusts or oxifies, it turns, it gets like a green coat on it. So that's, the Statue of Liberty is not painted. It is rusted over. 
And there oh. is there is a lot of and like after you do that, you go back into Manhattan and you look at basically every building like larger building constructed between like 1880 and like 1940. All of them have like copper railings and stuff, and all that shit is just this pale, sickly like Statue of Liberty green everywhere. And it's that is super interesting to me because you're walking around the city being like. None of this shit looked like like the architects didn't want any of this shit to look like this, and I have no idea if you're making buildings or giants. St- I mean, they, I, I assume that the French architect who made the Statue of Liberty was very cognizant that it would turn green. It was probably fine with that idea, but I think most of like the random banisters and stuff around New York City was just like some random architect being like, "Eh, it'll be fine for like twenty years." I honestly did not know that about the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and I actually that is something I would love to do if I ever went to New York because I like visiting places like that because I had the same kind of feeling of oh, I've seen this before in plenty of pictures and stuff. I don't need to go there, yeah. but often there's really cool stuff. Like one of my favorite experiences ever was seeing Mount Rushmore. Um, because that, like in real life, is so breathtaking. The the audacity that people fucking did that right. is insane. But they also have a really nice museum and stuff there where you learn things. And it's like, this yeah. is actually kind of fun. Yeah, it's actually, it, it, is, it is 100% the museum, at least to me, the museum parts of those things that is way more interesting than the actual thing. Because it's like, the Statue of Liberty is really cool, but like... It's not. It's not that. It's not like taking a ferry out to go to Liberty Island and see it super up close. It's then like paying all that money. It is not that cool to me, at least. But going to see the museum, and one thing I really loved about the museum is that there were a couple of sections in there that very specifically talked about the commercialism around the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> which was great for me because like the entire time there, like I've got an English degree and I'm a big smartass, so the entire time I'm just thinking about like. How fucking ridiculous it is that we have this statue that is supposedly, it's like this gift from France and is supposed to be this like symbol worldwide for like the American dream and, and, and liberty and justice and like, you know, like huddled masses and all that stuff, you know, like it's supposed to symbolize all these great ideas. And then when you're walking around New York City, every single store you walk by has a billion t-shirts yes. that have the Statue of Liberty <laughs> on it. It has like... If you, man, if you want some goddamn Statue of Liberty or Empire State Building paperweights, you can get some. You can get any kind of paperweight made of any material, made of like of any size, whatever you want. Okay, they have them on. They should just might as well hand them out when you fucking land in the airport. How many in New York? How many Statue of Liberty themed sex toys do you think you could procure within like an hour? Oh, hundreds easily. Easily. And not even just, like, hundreds of, like, the same model. I'm talking about hundreds of different kinds you can find. Like, there is a intensity to the, like, the consumerism and the commercialization of New York City's icons. That, like, it makes a lot of sense, but it sort of, like, undermines when you're, like, it's, like, it's the actuality of the experience when, like, that stuff is made physical and you're really there and you realize... You know, humans are humans, and like the ideals are fine and beautiful. When I'm sitting in Colorado and like it's like watching movies set in New York City, or like reading a book or something that's like thematizes the Statue of Liberty, it's like, yeah, that's really remarkable. What a remarkable human achievement this this like architectural achievement this statue is, and all that, and what it represents. But then when you're actually there, it's all about man, people are making some fucking money off this goddamn thing. Like, holy shit. It's, it, it's so crass. It's so it's so America. Like, yes. honestly, in so many ways. It, it's, Sean, in more ways than one, it represents the American dream. Yeah, exactly. I had a question. Okay. So you and I are both 
immigrant families yes. down the line. Yes. Did your family come through on Ellis Island? Uh, no. Okay. Came south, I think. Interesting. Mine did. And I, that's one of the things I've always wanted to go to New York for. I know my dad found this online on one of those sites that, you know, our great great grandfather, one of them, did sign the book at Ellis Island. So I've always wanted to go and, like, look at that. Yeah, it's cool. basically like we didn't do the Ellis Island thing, but you okay. can basically, like, when you do it, the ferry, it does, like, a loop that goes from, like, the, the coast at Battery Shore and goes up to Liberty Island where the Statue of Liberty is and then goes to Ellis Island. Or you can just, like, stay on because we needed to get back so we didn't stay for the Ellis Island stuff. But, yeah. See, I really just want to research it because I want to know what our name was in Germany. Yeah, because, because Lack, there's no one else on the planet with a stupid last name like Lack. Sorry. Lack is, well, it's, it's something they fucking made up on the island. Yeah. It's like Michael Corleone, except at least he had a real Italian name. It's the name of his city. It's not yeah. his real name. Or not Michael Vito. But I really want to know that. Like, what was our name in Germany? Because Lack, I have to explain it every time when I tell someone my name. Not a real name. No. Yeah. It's not like there was some person hundreds of years ago that, like, the royal family found kind of lacking, so they just named him Lack, and it sort of stuck the way that, like, like my family named Chapman comes from Cheapman, which was, like, a, a sort of slang term for, like, traitors and stuff hundreds of years ago. So it's like, my name yeah. has roots. I have an actual last our, name. Our theory is always it comes from some form of lock, and it was probably near a lake, but anyway. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. But So back to the Statue of Liberty thing really quick. It's basically done. What, uh, the... The, the, one of the, my favorite parts about the museum was like they showed a bunch of like vintage political cartoons and stuff from the, the construction of the Statue of Liberty where like there were some insightful motherfuckers back in like the early 20th century drawing political cartoons about the Statue of Liberty and like there's like my favorite was like one that just had like all these like billboards and advertisements on it with like this guy like says like this is how like they're going to pay for this like this is what this is going to become it's going to be a symbol for like American consumerism and everything is like that's really great that's that's awesome that like they can like whoever like like the because I think it's technically a national park so the, the national park people like put together the museum it's awesome that they were like hey we're like we're not going to make it this super jingoistic thing like there's elements of that in there. But they represent, like, the Statue of Liberty, I think, from all perspectives of, like, the French side of it. Because, you know, maybe people don't know this. I don't know. I feel like it's common knowledge. But I learned on that trip, a lot of people did not know this. We did not make the Statue of Liberty. Right. We made the pedestal, the base of the Statue of Liberty. But the Statue of Liberty was French, and they gave it to us. And so, yeah. And we gave them the Eiffel Tower. And yeah. It is, just yeah. And then we, then we just insulted them after World War II because we're... <laughs> Real nice people. America would literally not even exist if France had not helped us in the Revolutionary War. But we'll still make fun of them because fuck them. <laughs> Snooty baguette motherfuckers. <laughs> That's the title of this episode. Yeah. Snooty baguette motherfuckers. But yeah, no. So it's like they represent, like, it's not just super nationalistic. They, like, talk a lot about, like, the French side of, like, making it and, like, all those people. Like, there is way more French stuff in the Statue of Liberty Museum than there is American stuff in the Statue of Liberty Museum. Thank God they haven't sold the Statue of Liberty to Coke or something yet. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That, that is what that little cartoon was basically about. And so I do profoundly appreciate that they, in that museum, that they, they showed the whole picture of it and every side of it, even the sides of the, the Statue of Liberty that are not exactly the most flattering for America. So that's the Statue of Liberty. Pretty cool. If you're in New York City and you are inclined, I would advise going to it. And at, and like, But do not go to it unless you get the tickets for the pedestal part of it because I don't think the, they, the chicken fingers that they serve at the, the base in like the little restaurant they have down there are pretty good, I can say from first-hand experience. 
but they're not they're not worth getting on the ferry and going all that way. And that ferry is packed, man. Holy shit. It's like immigrants coming to the United States. Basically. And, and it is like, well, here's a, while I'm thinking about it, another amazing thing about New York City is that partially because it's just like a very like ethnically diverse city, like because it's so cosmopolitan and it's, it's such a like massive city and so dense. Like obviously there's like, uh, like so many people from so many different walks of life there, but it's also such a massive worldwide tourist attraction that while you are sitting on that ferry to go to Statue of Liberty, you hear like every single language on the planet being spoken around you at the same time. And the most utterly soul crushing part about it is that I think I heard in like at least in six different languages, people saying the word selfie and that, that <laughs> killed me. Cause that's like, it's been, cause it's been a really long time since I went on like a proper vacation than this, before this one. And so I hadn't really gone on a vacation since the self selfies became really a thing. And like, you know, there are like people standing on the side of the street on like street corners in New York City selling selfie sticks, and it's like, what is our what is what is this? What are we doing? And there's like here's, people like here. on the ferry taking pictures of themselves with fucking selfie sticks, talking like Italian. There's a selfie. It's like what? The, stop! Stop! People, stop! Don't. You know, the thing is, I think the multi multiculturalism of New York is another thing people probably don't know about because name a TV right. show featuring New York that also has a black person on it. This is good. Hey, Law and law and Order. Okay. Law and Order. Okay. All over the place, man. Okay. Yeah. Law and Order. But the, Law and Order is not on the air anymore, so you might have a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. But then also about the, the language thing, it's also really awesome that every single sign in New York that's like, that's not just like a stop sign, but like a legitimate, like in the Statue of Liberty area, like every single sign that's telling you like where to go and stuff like that is in at least six different languages. Like legitimately, it's like you have like... English, there's like Spanish, there's French, there's Arabic, there's Chinese, there's Japanese. It's like there's fucking everything. Like I half expected Hebrew to pop up on it. It's ridiculous. And it's really cool. That's like you just don't see that in like anywhere else really. Well, when President Trump gets elected, we'll get rid of all of that. Hopefully, yeah. I mean it'll save a lot of money if like we have to redo the science to only do one language, like it's it's kind of a waste of space. But yeah, so that's the statue. That was sarcasm. Yeah, no. Just yeah, so y'all know. Yeah, don't email in. <laughs> we're not. Yeah, we're not having any more of that conversation. But uh, other things we did that were really cool were we went to the Empire State Building. That was a lot of fun. We we the most amazing part of the Empire State Building, like the view and all that stuff, is fine. Is cool. The most amazing part about our trip was that we somehow went at like the perfect time when like. Like, everything just aligned in the universe and, like, Venus was in the house of whatever that there was almost no one else there. Wow. It's like, and we went with my brother and my, my dad and my mom, so all of us went together because my brother had not uh, actually done the whole Empire State Building thing yet. And he said that one of the main reasons he didn't is that everywhere on that street block is constantly packed because there's so many tourists. And we just, like, went there and it was like, like when you actually got to the observatory, it was full. But you could get a sense of how many people are generally in line in the Empire State Building in that, you know, like in theaters, they have like little stanchion things with like like the like the cloth lines and stuff to sort of create these like multi-tiered lines to get people through and to make efficient use of space. They had those for like going through like a whole floor and then you went up some stairs and then had a whole other thing of those, like a whole layer 
of those. And it's like, they had like three of them. Like three just like whole floors of just layers of these. And we just walked through every single one until we got to the elevator where the line was. Like, you, like they put up all these little like things like, like, that, like screens that dynamically displayed information about the Empire State Building. And that were just like walking right past that are clearly there because you're supposed to be standing there for like 40 fucking minutes. So you're like reading these things as you go through and we're just walking through. It was like a three minute walk to get to where you like give your like tickets that you have to like buy. To like then get like the other tickets that you need to like give to the people to go up to the observatory. It was insane. It so was wait. fucking awesome. Wait, wait, wait. The craziest part of this whole thing. They got TVs in the line for the Empire yes. State Building. And they're not just showing King Kong on a loop? No. I Honestly, we'll, we'll talk about King Kong in a little bit. We'll, oh, we'll, get, there. we'll get there in the trip. Because actually my dad and I rewatched King Kong like a day before we went. Of course you did. Because it's like our favorite movie. And it's awesome. And we got that new TV. And it looks good on that new TV. Nice. So, but anyways, we went up to the observatory on the Empire State Building. And that's cool. Like, it is an insane view because it is a very tall building. It is not the tallest building in New York anymore, but it is a, it's like that part of it is pretty spectacular. So like that was a lot of fun, but to get to the King Kong part, we got to, after you go through the observatory and you get your fill of like looking at all this stuff, you then go like back through and then you go through a gift shop basically where they sell a bunch of stuff to you. Because again, like, Hey, America, America, exactly. Capitalism. We need, we need money. We need money. But I was actually profoundly disappointed by the gift shop. I thought the the offerings that they had were very poor. There was only there was one wall on like like a small wall that had King Kong stuff on it that had three different King Kong plushies. It had a screen that was playing like a trailer for King Kong. Like it wasn't even just playing King Kong on the is what you wanted. There was no sound on it or anything. And there's like a couple of mugs that had like a King Kong thing on it. There are a couple of t-shirts. My brother got a my brother got a t-shirt of King Kong taking a selfie at the top of the Empire State Building that says hashtag selfie on it and I had to bite my tongue when I saw that happening. But in the back of my head like, You didn't throw your brother off the Empire State Building? No, because in the back of my head I was like because I have a complicated relationship with my brother, as like all brothers have complicated relationships. As like I love him, and I also kind of despise him at times. So I like to think of him looking like a complete idiot walking around New York wearing that stupid fucking t-shirt. It's like serves him right. So there's that, and it's like there's like honestly the coolest thing they sold in the the gift shop was just like a little like coffee table book that had like a bunch of pictures of the Empire State Building and like historical facts about it. We didn't get that, but like. Everything else is like, just like the shittiest. There were, there were like, this is how desperate they were for like finding merchandise somehow. Is that there were two different Hello Kitty plushies that had that were like Empire State Building themed, and like one of them was like was dressed like the attendants that are in the Empire State Building, and the other one was just dressed like a fucking out of like a rich lady. Like it was just like so sad. It's like the the Statue of Liberty. Like, say what you will about how it undermines the ideals that the statue represents. At least, like, that fucking gift shop merchandised the shit out of that thing. Like, they knew what they were doing. Statue of Liberty dildos up the ass. Yeah. Literally. Yes. Exactly. Literally. Literally. But, like, you couldn't... Like, this is how bad it is, Jonathan. Is that you? there isn't even, like, a unique... 
like DVD version of King Kong that you can only buy in the Empire State Building gift shop. It's just you can buy the DVD there. It's just a normal DVD. Bam. You can't even buy like the because I have like a really nice little box set that has King Kong, Son of Kong, and Mighty Joe Young on it, and the King Kong one has. Some of the best like special features yes. I've ever bought, that I've ever seen in any like movie. Like I've watched the special features three. I've watched the special features on that DVD actually more times than I've watched King Kong on that specific DVD. Not in my lifetime, but like the special features on that are awesome. They don't even have that version. Like it's just like a normal shitty DVD of King Kong. How do you how do you fuck that up? How do you not have like your own? Like, like, it doesn't even have to have its own special features or anything. It can be the same fucking DVD. At like, least have its own cover, right? Yeah. Like, you just make a slip cover for it. Yeah. That's that's crazy that they didn't do that. But I did, I'm actually going to get up in a second and go grab my Kong plushie. Because I did buy one Kong plushie. Because <laughs> it was, it's actually, it was a tradition when I was a kid, little kid that every time we went on a trip, for whatever reason, I would just buy like a monkey plushie as like a souvenir. So I've got like a bunch of them. And I haven't done that in a long time. And on this trip, it was like, it's King Kong. I would probably buy this anyway. But the tradition makes it better. So this is five seconds I'm not going to be on here. You okay. Just, just keep it running. Do you want me to keep it running? Just fill time. Fill okay. time. Okay. It's right over here. I think we're going to need to do a King Kong podcast at some point. We have never, right. We have never podcasted on that version of King Kong specifically. But now I see your, your plushie could be the yeah. star of the show. Yeah, it's it's okay. It's uh, an okay yeah, it's plushie. It's okay. It, it, this is, and they sold three different plushies. Like the other two did not resemble King Kong in the slightest. One of them just looked like a spider monkey plushie that they just lopped the tail off. It was like that's fucked up. Had no proportion similar to King Kong. This is like the one I got. Kind of looks like King Kong, and he's got a little T-shirt on that says Empire State Building, New York. It's like that's the best I could do. It's like that's the best on offer. How did like? It's literally a movie that the most remarkable thing about the movie is a fucking gorilla animatronic that would be easy to replicate in some sort of toy fashion, and they literally don't even sell that. How is that possible? It is the easiest toy to make on the planet because they made the fucking toy in 1932. Like, Willis O'Brien made it with his goddamn own two hands. It's 2016. I can't get, like, a vaguely similar replica at the top of the Empire motherfucking state building? Yeah. Are you kidding me? What are we doing, America? This would be a perfectly acceptable plushie you bought, like, here in Colorado. Yeah. For, for, or, like, maybe on the street in New York. Maybe. But at the Empire State Building, it's okay. It's not. No, I would have imagined something way more creative. Like, really, you need a plushie, like a plushie Empire State Building with plushie King Kong wrapped around it. Exactly. Like, there's so... There's so many merchandising opportunities. Lego set was not there. We will talk about Legos, though. That, that, I guess that will be my next section. Okay, we've probably got to move on soon. Okay, so I'll, I'll go through the next two things real quick, because they are my favorite two things. Because like, we did a lot of other stuff. But I think it was actually on our second day there, like sort of like started with a bit of a showstopper for my personal trip. We ended up walking around Rockefeller Plaza, which is a really cool area with a lot of really awesome Art Deco buildings and stuff like that there. And so that was just a lot of fun. There's, like, a lot of, like, very iconic statues and stuff there. Like, there's an iconic statue of Atlas, like, holding up a, a fake globe and stuff like that. But there are two really amazing things on Rockefeller Plaza that I was walking around there with my mom, and she did not appreciate either of them. But the first one was on Rockefeller Plaza, there is a dope-ass motherfucking Lego store that is 
like it's a big Lego store that it only sells Legos. There's no bullshit. There's if you only go there if you want Legos because that's all they sell. They don't. I don't like they had Lego Dimensions Legos in there, but I don't even think they sold the video game. That is how dedicated they were to only selling physical Lego bricks. But the cool thing about the store was not just like it's like it's a Lego exclusive store. It was that every like all around the store were basically like Lego recreations of iconic statues and stuff in Rockefeller Plaza nice. that like culminated in like a small like scaled uh, Rockefeller Plaza like Lego model that I say is small is actually probably about as tall as I am since so like it's really big and there's like a huge sea serpent going throughout the store. If you are in New York City. A lot of people will not tell you this. One of the things you have to see is that Lego store because it is actually really amazing. It's like the the art on display there. I think it is personally like basically comparable for me to the actual statues in Rockefeller Plaza. Like their ability to recreate those things so one to one, really awesome. That kind of thing is. I will remember I went to Legoland once in California, and that was just cool because of all the like the like Lego cities they built and yeah. stuff. Yeah, because it it's like it's this weird phenomenon where you're, like, you're walking through that plaza seeing all these things and being like, oh, I've seen that in a movie. Or it's like, oh, I saw that in like, an art textbook from college. And then you walk into the store and it's like, these little Lego, like not little, like again, bigger than me, but compared to the actual statues, littler Lego versions of these are actually kind of more impressive to me than the actual ones. <laughs> so there's that. Then the other thing that is not on Rockefeller Plaza but is adjacent to it that I had no idea was there. And only did this on a whim because I thought, I was like, this is kind of weird that this is here. And then discovered the coolest thing that exists in New York City. For me personally, it was like, this is no joke. This is the coolest thing. Was while we were walking back to our hotel from Rockefeller Plaza, my mom and I saw a Nintendo store that's in New York. And it is just Nintendo. Like, like with Lego. It's just a Nintendo logo on the top of two doors on like a two-story building. Or not a two-story building, but a two-story shop. And it was like... Oh, I have to see what's in this. I've never walked past a Nintendo store before. It's pretty famous, the Nintendo New York yeah, store. Yeah, I had never heard of it before. Okay. So I went in there. That is the coolest store on the planet because they are, one, they are always playing Nintendo music throughout the store. Nice. And that is, that is really cool. They're playing some Legend of Zelda music when I walked in. It's like, this is, every store should just be playing. I was a little bit disappointed that they weren't just playing, like, the shop music from Ocarina of Time, because that would be my personal <laughs> choice, even though it would drive all the cashiers literally insane. But that's what I would be doing. But so you walk in, and you immediately, there's, like, like Nintendo music playing. There are, like, lined on the walls. And this is just the first floor. This is a whole adventure when you go into this store. On the first floor, you see, like, there's, like, game stuff in the back. But then you also see, like, lined up on this wall, basically, there's probably about eight to ten stations set up of just, like, there were, like, they were basically all 3DSs in, in Nintendo Wii U's with, like, different games. There were, like, Pokin Tournament and, like, Fire Emblem was there. The Fire Emblem, I get it's, like, their newest release, but it was a little bit who's going to stand there and play Fire Emblem on, like, a, just, like a store demo or whatever. But, like, play for ten hours in yeah. a row. <laughs> I, there's probably some kid that was doing that because it was all like kids playing all of them, which was cool. That I was a little bit afraid that it would yeah. just be all like 20 year old guys, and it's like the death of Nintendo would that would be the death of Nintendo. But it was all kids like playing like all these different games all over the place. They had like like Pokemon and stuff set up there, and that was cool. And then they had some things in like like little display cases that were also pretty awesome. Like the one that was the coolest that was on the first floor. 
was they had the Master Sword replica that is the exact same Master Sword replica that Miyamoto walked out on the stage on E3 2005 to announce Twilight Princess, oh. where he came out with the Hylian Shield and the Master Sword to announce it. Like, they have that model in a glass display, like, right there. And it's basically one of the first things you see when you walk in. It was like... And that was really cool, and I was like... Again, not expecting much walking into this Nintendo store as someone who does not own a modern Nintendo console at all. I just, like, walked in there out of curiosity. I was like, this is really cool. And then my mom was like, oh, you should, like, get a picture taken here. And I was like, ah, I'm not a picture guy. I don't really want to do that. It's like, let's just look around the store. Like, I don't want my picture taken in front of, like, the Master Sword display. But then it was like, oh, wait, there's a second floor to the store. I need to see what's up there. So then you walk up the second floor. And then as you're walking up the second floor, you walk around this big diorama of basically, like, the end of a Mario level where, like, there's a pole and, like, Mario's at the top and, like, Luigi's at the bottom and you walk up. And that's a really cool diorama. But then when you get to the top, I was meted with, again, literally the coolest thing that is in New York City, which is something that if you you saw... It was either last year's Nintendo, uh, like, E3 press conference thing for Nintendo, or it was the year before that. But when they were talking about Super Mario Maker, there was a small section where they were just showing some historical artifacts around the creation of the original Super Mario Brothers with, with Miyamoto and everything. And it was like, walked up that store and saw a display case with some graph paper in it. And, like, immediately, like, my heart dropped into my fucking stomach. And I, like, because I was not expecting this to be there. And it hit, this hit every single part of, like, the nerd part of my body. It was, like, video game stuff is, like, related to my childhood with Nintendo. And then it's, like, also, like, my academic side of, like, the historical artifacts that they have on display a selection of pieces of graph paper that Shigeru Miyamoto and the level designer... Like, they helped him for the original Super Mario Brothers. Like, they're the graph paper they used to plan out the levels before they programmed them in that are on display in a glass display case. And I took some pictures of them just to show Jonathan. Because you can find these pictures online. But it's like, I just, like, I was there. Oh, my God. And this was, again, I am not, this is, like, what it was. is like, I am not a picture person. I almost took no pictures during my trip in New York City. So it was like, because I just don't like to do that. As soon as I saw these like, my immediate reflex was, I have to fucking, I have to take pictures of these. Because they are fucking amazing. Like, you see, like, it is just straight up, like, you see the title screen in, like, color pencil, and then, like, the first section of screens from one, one. Super Mario Brothers 1-1, one, one, where you can even see, like, that they number the screens at the top of, like, there's, like, the zero screen, the first screen, the second screen... And, like, there are some, like, little notes in, like, Japanese down here. There's, like, you can see the pipe you can go in. This is, like, Iriyuchi, which means entrance and stuff. It's, like... And then there's there's other selections of, like, from other levels. But this, like, the ones that show basically the beginning of 1-1 and the beginning of 1-2 and the title screen, like, are basically, again, the coolest thing I saw in all of New York City. This is like reaching out and touching the hand of God. I mean, this is like... Because I was trying to explain to my mom how like significant a thing this is. That it is literally like going and finding like a Shakespeare folio that is on display somewhere. Like, like an original early 17th century Shakespeare folio. Like that is the degree to which it is like finding... Like a fucking script of Citizen Kane, like that is that was like Orson Welles' script that he like marked notes on on display somewhere. Like that is how like significant a a piece of like historical and cultural artifact 
these pieces of graph paper are. That's like, holy fucking shit. That was so cool. Like, not expecting it, not knowing anything about it. And again, like, in the... Like, as soon as I saw it, like, my, like, memory just, like, I had a flashback to watching that E3 video that Nintendo had of, like, Miyamoto, like, going through, like, this, like, some of his notes and stuff and talking about it. It was like, oh, my God, these are, like, these are those notes. Like, these are those pieces of graph paper. That's really cool. So if you go to New York City and you care anything about video games, go to the Nintendo store because, holy shit, that is really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's... That's that's my New York trip. I bought a Legend of Zelda guitar songbook from that store because I felt bad if I just like saw like this awesome my favorite thing I saw in New York City and left without giving them any money. And it actually is a really good collection of Legend of Zelda music that has guitar tablature, so I'm actually really glad I bought it. That's awesome. I bought it on a whim. But yeah, so that's that that is my New York City trip. I had a lot of fun. All that stuff that I talked about was cool. I did other stuff. Well, but. can I segue into another Nintendo topic? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So this week. The, the previous week, I guess it's been a week since it came out, Bravely Second and Lair came out for the Nintendo 3DS. Yeah. I have not had a chance to play it yet because I've been busy with Digimon and work and stuff, and I'm kind right. of waiting for a quiet moment. But I did get the game in. I had the collector's edition on pre-order. This is one of those Nintendo collector's editions, so if you didn't pre-order it, you're fucked. Right. But I had... So they it was a collector's edition. I knew it had a soundtrack and an art book. And from what it looked like on the site, like on Amazon, I thought it would be maybe the size of a DVD or something. Sean, here's the Bravely Second Collector's Edition. Holy shit! Look at that thing! That is, like... It is shaped like if you, like, have ever been to a church and seen, like, the Bible they have at the pulpit in a, like, fancy church. It is that size a book, basically. I have nice art books I've paid, like, 60 bucks for that are smaller than this. Yeah, that is that is a significant... So piece of merchandise. giant collector's edition. You open it up again for a 3ds game. Yeah, so. for a 3ds game. So the game and is approximately like one one hundredth the size yeah. of the packaging. Yeah, like look. So here's the box where you open it up and then you get the box with the. Uh, so you get the 3ds game. It's just in its normal box. You got that there. You get the CD. It's about a forty-five minute album. So it's called a mini album. It's not right. quite a sampler. It's got more than that. It's like forty-five minutes, but not everything. But I'm still glad to have it yeah. because the music in this game is great. Um, so you get all that. And then, and that's cool. But the best part is this book that came with it. This is so it's got like a three hundred page art book. I'm showing it to Sean right now. It's yeah, huge. Jesus. And look at this. Look at the art in this. It's yeah. amazing. This is the kind of thing that normally I would pay a hundred bucks to import. Yeah. This yeah. entire collector's edition cost me about fifty five dollars. I think normally it's seventy or eighty, but I had that Amazon discount. Yeah, like this, like regardless of like what it is for, this like quality of art book is like worth a lot more than fifty five dollars. Yeah, like there's those persona ones that I've been wanting to get. Yeah. And they're they're less pages than this and cost way more. Yeah. So this is crazy. Like it's sketches and stuff, and I haven't had a time to go through a ton of it, but it's even got that Japanese, you know, obi thing where they yeah. put the little binding around the book. So it's like a Japanese book. It's it's just gorgeous. This is I had no idea this would be this nice. This is one of the best video game collector's editions I've ever gotten. Yeah, that is that is really like just kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, even like look at the little box where the 3DS yeah. stuff comes in. It's got like little things etched into it and whatnot. It's and then like just the collector's edition box itself, the art on it is beautiful. Yeah. So, like, I cannot wait to play the game. I'm sure it's going to be great. I just, I've been playing Digimon, and I don't really want to quit at the moment. So I'll get to it eventually. But, man, they did a number on this collector's edition. Yeah, like, that is... It's, it's kind of weird because it's, like... 
I get that, like, like, these games are fairly popular, but, like, this is, like, the kind of treatment for, like, the quality of a collector's edition that you would expect from, like, Final Fantasy XV, yes. you know? Like, not... And for, like, 200 bucks, not yeah. for... Not for 50, 50. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy, because, like, I've gotten... I get a lot of video game collector's editions. I get at least a few a year. And, like, you know, recently I've gotten all those different Persona ones, and yeah. those are super nice and totally worth the money, but they cost more than this and, frankly, came with, you know, less. I guess yeah. you could say Dancing All Night was worth it for the uh, The soundtrack, soundtrack. yeah, which was, that was a really good add-on. But. but other than that, you know, it's was fairly modest compared to what they did here. So, awesome. I mean, this... Clearly, Nintendo knows they've got a really good game on their hands, so I can't... And pretty much everything I've heard is that this is even better than the original, so I can't wait to play it. Yeah, cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Having played that demo I was telling you guys about, and just knowing it is so good, uh, I can't wait to play more. It is very tough to get back in the yeah, box. Yeah, like, for the past, like, five minutes, Jonathan has been trying to put his collector's edition back in his box. It's and it's, it's very It's very fun to watch. Anyway, why don't you go ahead and talk about something. Dark Souls 3, how's that? Okay, I'll talk about Dark Souls 3. So Dark Souls 3 came out while I was on my trip. I think it actually basically came out when I left. And so on my trip, I was not originally planning to buy Dark Souls 3 right away, but while I was on my trip, I was basically cut off from video games while I was there because I talked about the whole in XCOM and Unknown Plus on the Vita snafu that happened. So I, I didn't play anything at all while I was on my trip. And then I saw like some videos and stuff when Dark Souls 3 came out and read some of the reviews. And it just like lit a fire in me of like, okay... Okay, like they're talking about how this is probably going to be the last like Dark Souls game. There, there's going to be more games made in this style in the way that Bloodborne was, but that this is the last Dark Souls proper. And I played Dark Souls one, and it's one of my favorite games ever. And I played Dark Souls two, and it frustrated me to no end. I might as well play Dark Souls three. I don't know. So I and you played Bloodborne. You're in for and a Bloodborne. Head. And Bloodborne was my second favorite game of last year. Like like Bloodborne is amazing. So yeah, like I said, in for a penny, in for a pound. And, and even like even when like Dark Souls Two really frustrated me, I loved the first half of Dark Souls Two. It was only that Dark Souls Two didn't end after the first half was done. It had a whole second half that was not as good and just dragged on forever. And that was why that is like basically why I don't like Dark Souls Two that much. It just just went on too long, and, and the last half, latter half of the game just sort of feels very repetitive because it doesn't do anything that builds upon what they did in the first half. So it's like Dark Souls Two is not a terrible game. This is very disappointing. After how good Dark Souls 1 was. So got back and just basically immediately downloaded Dark Souls 3. And then like thought I was just going to play a little bit of it. And like I'm probably like halfway through the game at this point. Wow. Close. And these are fairly long games. I put, I've sunk basically every moment I can into playing Dark Souls 3 right now. And it's something where I was almost kind of surprised that I got sucked in as much as I did. Because early on I was sort of finding Dark Souls 3 a little bit underwhelming. Like, not in a way that made me want to stop playing it, necessarily, because I was still having fun, but, like, nothing... But there was, like, I kept on waiting for something to really click, because, one, it took me a really long time to unlearn, like, my Bloodborne habits, because Bloodborne's combat is very different than Dark Souls' combat, which... Like, I kind of knew when I was playing Bloodborne, but you, like, when you, as you get adapted to, like, the different mechanics that Bloodborne layers on top of that sort of Souls-style combat, you kind of forget that's like, oh, right, like, Dark Souls compared to Bloodborne is, like, really slow, like, it is a lot of, like, hanging back with your shield, managing your stamina super carefully, it is not 
the fast-paced, like, really aggressive kind of combat that Bloodborne has, especially when you get good at Bloodborne in the later areas where you, like, really have to be aggressive with the combat in that game. And so unlearning that was really painful because it's like... Because it just in comparison to Bloodborne, the combat in Dark Souls just feels so slow. It's so, like, even when you're playing as, like, the fastest build you can play as, which is how I like to play those games, and with basically the fastest weapon I had on hand, like, still just felt way too slow to me. But then eventually, once I, like, got back into those habits of, like, okay, I'm not going to rush in all the time. I'm not going to rely on the dodge exclusively all the time for my defense. Because Bloodborne was a game that had no shields at all. Dark Souls is a game where, like, there are certain boss fights where I don't know how you beat them without a shield. That's, like, the, the, how massive the difference is in sort of, like, how you have to try to play those games. And so once I got into those habits again, and once I got through the first few starting areas, like, what Dark Souls 3 began to really click for me and where I am now in the game, I love it a lot. And it's, like, I would be pretty surprised if if it ended up... If I ended up getting frustrated with, it, with this the way I did Dark Souls 2, because I think the things that Dark Souls 3 is doing they're doing much more deliberately and they're doing it in a much more interesting way. And that Dark Souls 3 is very much the last Dark Souls game in terms of how they're playing with some of the mechanics and more importantly how they're playing with the world building and like the boss encounters and the boss design and stuff like that is that Dark Souls is a series that has always been built on this really sort of obscure storytelling that like you always feel like there is a story going on. You always feel like there are characters acting in certain ways, but you never quite perceive any of it directly. And it, so much of the story in those games is entirely for like on your inference and like you trying to piece things together and reading all these weird item descriptions and like looking at different environmental cues and being like, okay, so if like this item was here and it's like, oh, this statue is here and that statue looks like this boss, so that means these things are connected. And it's like, so it's like, that's how you kind of piece things together. And I got pretty good at that in Bloodborne because the story really interested me there in the way that Dark Souls 1 Dark Souls 2 didn't. But what Dark Souls 3 does that takes the story and the environment stuff to the other level is that it is, it is the direct continuation of the things that are happening in Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2. Not like it is set probably like hundreds, maybe thousands of years further in the timeline. Like it is not like you're not like running into all the same characters all the time or anything like that because people don't really survive Dark Souls games to be characters in future Dark Souls games, even if they wanted them to be. But, like, you are seeing, like, direct references to places from Dark Souls 1 or, like, like places or, like, cultures that are, like, in Dark Souls 2. And you're seeing, like, oh, okay, so, like, these characters are, like, guys who basically, like, worship this boss from the DLC of Dark Souls 1. And, th okay, so that means this whole area is basically the land from the DLC of Dark Souls 1 hundreds of years in the future. And it's like, so that means that, like, and so you're, like, that extra layer of being able to bring in all the, like, knowledge that I honestly, I didn't even knew I remembered from the things in Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 2 into the story in the world of Dark Souls 3 makes that world have a life in a very different way than Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 2. Because the one thing that is my major criticism of this game is that Dark Souls was so much built upon this sense of exploration and discovery and things feeling very new because it's a very different kind of game. Like, obviously, Demon's Souls is very similar in a lot of ways, but the world building was very different between those two games. And so when you have, like, and that's one of the things with, like, Dark Souls 2... A lot of that discovery and exploration is kind of gone when it's like I played one of these games already for like 80 hours. I know how the combat works. And it's like 
Dark Souls 2's world design was also very disjointed, so it didn't quite have that element to sort of like drag you through. Whereas Dark Souls 3, early on, I really felt that like, okay, so this is, I'm going to go to another place where there's another stony bridge and another dragon that shoots fire on it that you have to like walk around. And it's like, okay, like this kind of character, this is like going to be some NPC in like the, the, the Firelink Shrine area that's going to end up killing other NPCs that are there at some point, and that'll be a subquest. And like there are these things that happen in all of the Dark Souls games. That like there's always going to be some dude in the first area that is standing on a wooden overhang. There's somewhere you have to go that's going to throw firebombs at you. Because that happened in Dark Souls 1 in the first area, that happened in Dark Souls 2 in the first area. And Dark Souls 3 does all of those things and that, like, early on really dragged me down. Because, like, oh, God, I don't want to play this again where the first area is a castle with a bunch of undead dudes. And then the next area is, like, a poison swamp. And the next area is, like, this and this and that. And it is doing those things. And Dark Souls 2 did those things and drove me crazy at some point and how much it followed the, that same track. But what Dark Souls 3 is doing is now it is conscious that it is doing that and it is playing on that. And it is, like, once I got a good, like, ten hours into the game and I saw, okay... They are conscious of the history of this world. Like, it is following the same general, like, areas and pathways that Dark Souls 1 did in terms of, like, the themes of the different areas you go to and the order you go into them in a very conscious and deliberate fashion that is, like, building on the story in these games in a way that I never thought I would be very interested in because I've never, other than Bloodborne, like, the Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 2, I didn't, like, that world didn't grab me in a way that I wanted to, like, find out what was happening. Here, there are, like, there's, like, this one boss fight, like the, the called the Abyss Watchers boss fight in particular for people who play the game, that like there's story stuff around that one that was like, oh, I totally understand what this boss fight is all about in a way I've never really been able to piece together for any of these other Souls games. Or there's one area that you can unlock in your shrine where there are a lot of corpses piled up at the bottom of this one tower that you can unlock and realizing I know what those corpses are. I know basically who these corpses are. Like, having those realizations based on your history with the franchise is really interesting and, and replaces that element of the unfamiliar that Dark Souls have with, like, kind of like, this is almost like the uncanny if I was going to bring out my English degree. Nice. Called the unheimlich. All right. Yeah. If you're a fan of, of Dark Souls and you play Dark Souls and play Dark Souls 2, even if you didn't like Dark Souls 2 that much, I would definitely recommend Dark Souls 3. Because it feels, it feels a lot more like... Dark Souls 1, the Dark Souls 2. Like, it well, repeals a lot of the, the changes they made with Dark Souls 2 and makes different ones. Oh, that's great, because I know you were really unsure whether you were going to play this one, and I'm yeah. glad that... Because I know you love this series, so I'm glad yeah, you were able to yeah. play it and enjoy kind of this last entry in the series as it currently exists. Yeah, it's a it's a good game. And that Abyss Watchers boss fight that I said before, like, I would have to think about this, but when I finished it, like, the immediate thought in my head was like, this is a franchise that is built on really awesome boss fights, and my immediate thought was, that is the best boss fight I've played in this game. This might be the best boss fight I've ever played in any game. Like, wow. That's nice. like, that is the degree to, like, hold, there's some fucking stuff in Dark Souls 3 that is really, really good. Better than Vamp in Metal Gear Solid 2? Uh, just a little bit, I think, just... Just a little bit. I don't know why I'm specifically picking on that one. I don't know, but like that that boss fight's pretty shitty. I think that's yeah. why I'm picking on that one. Like that fucking right around that stupid square room with yeah. a big pool in the middle. That was a terrible boss fight. <laughs> All right. Um let's see. Let's go ahead and move on and hit some yeah. of these trailers and news. We'll go through some of this kind of quick. So in terms of movie trailers, um the first two of these aired while we were recording the last batch of podcasts. Right. So it's been two weeks, but I feel like if we don't touch on them briefly, we'll get questions. So 
new Suicide Squad trailer. Right. Where they, they are going deeper down their hole. Of yes. Like, of pop music. Yeah. And I'll just say it right away, I fucking hate that Blitzkrieg Bop song. So, or what was it? Was it Blitzkrieg Bop or was it... <laughs> I don't think it was. I don't remember. It's been like two okay, weeks since I saw it. No, I don't think it was Blitzkrieg Bop. I, it's, I get Blitzkrieg Bop is not like an amazing song. No, I, I like get that. I get song. that song and the song they used in this trailer mixed up all the time. I never. What was this one? This one was. It was a song like that. I don't know. Anyway, and okay, yeah, and so it's basically like the last trailer, but with more overt sexualization of Harley Quinn. Right. Yes, I vaguely remember that now. Yeah. I mean, did it leave much of an impression on you? Not really. I mean, my favorite part about that was seeing a post on Reddit like a couple of days later where someone just put the the title cards at the end of all those trailers in juxtaposition with one another and seeing like, you know, like our general impression of these trailers is like, the first one was kind of grim. And the second one was like, that was a lot more fun and actiony. And this third one goes even further into that sort of like pop, like bubblegum pop almost kind of direction. Yeah. And it was like... When you see the, the title cards they use at the end of each trailer, the first one is very dark and not very colorful. The second one has, like, some, like, pink and, like, some little, like, glitter in there. And the third one is, like, fucking Technicolor, like, neon craziness. So, clearly, they are trying to course correct that movie in some major way in terms of the tone. At least in terms of how they're advertising it. Okay. Ballroom Blitz. That's okay, what it was. Yes, I are, get that, and Blitzkrieg Bop mixed up all yeah, the time. We're gonna get some serious punk like Ramones fans. Sorry, yelling Blitzkrieg Bop is fine. Ballroom Blitz, I hate way more. I don't even know what Ballroom Blitz is. It's used in a lot of trailers. Okay. Anyway, but yeah, no, I agree with you on that. It is kind of funny how they're doing these total one eighties on the movie. And again, I, this is of all the like DC movies coming up, I probably have more faith in this one to be okay. If yeah. It's like of the probability, like if I were to bet on which one would be has the highest pop probability of being a good movie, I think it's probably this one just because it's out on a limb far enough and it's with some interesting filmmakers and actors. It could work, but I still have. Zero faith in DC's overall plans because yeah. you all saw Batman v Superman, right? Yeah, like that's part of it is just people assuming like, okay, that was bad, but this will automatically be great, right? It's like, no, guys, I know it's a different director on the title. It yeah. is the same people in part behind the scenes. I wouldn't get too confident. Like, and one of the yeah, like I, they could say in this trailer at the beginning, if Batman v Superman went a very different way. This movie is brought to you by the people who made Batman v Superman. It is. Zack Snyder is a producer on it. You know, you can't ignore that. And I don't... Like, in the beginning, they try to do the shoehorned-in Superman call-out. I hated that part of the trailer, where they're trying to explain, like, if he wanted to, Superman could just kill the president. And it's like... People using a lot of Batman logic there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I'm not... It's not a side of this I'm interested in. I don't know how tied in it will be. I don't know. There are still... Basically, it's funny, because none of the trailers for Suicide Squad have changed my mind in the things I already thought looked good. Like, I think Margot Robbie looks like a really good Harley Quinn. I don't like how much they're overtly sexualizing her in the trailer because that's not how I kind of see Harley Quinn. Yeah. Or at least, the I don't know, you could, but I feel like in context it would make way more sense than as cutouts in a trailer. Yeah. Um, But I think she will probably be really good. I am interested in some of the other actors here. Um, I want to see what the fuck Will Smith as Deadshot is like because yeah, that's so bizarre. What, the, what that version of that character is going to be. Yeah, because yeah. my instinct is that it will be the boring version of it where because Will Smith is inherently likable, yeah. he'll be Deadshot as an anti-hero and not a villain, and that's not a really interesting version of Deadshot, but whatever. Um, and then, but we'll see. Um, and then I still, I don't know what to make of Jared Leto's Joker. Yeah. I, I, and I'm kind of glad they're saving him for the actual movie, 
but all the little hints feel like out of context. This doesn't make sense. I mean, that's the thing with these trailers of that. Like trailers have to walk such a fine line because we talk about this a lot because we we tend to talk about these trailers. That, like, there is this weird line between showing nothing and thus being, like, kind of incomprehensible and not being enticing for the movie. This is how I feel about all three of these Suicide Squad trailers. And then on the other hand, there is the Batman v Superman trailer that has the Doomsday reveal at the end where you're like, you just literally gave away the entire three-act structure of your movie and now there is no surprise. And when you went and saw that movie, the only thing that was mildly surprising was that Superman dies at the end. It's fucking spoilers, but I don't give a shit. And even that, if you know anything about how Doomsday pops up in the comics, in the story where he was introduced, called The Death of Superman, maybe Superman dies at the end of the movie. So it's like, even the one thing that it was a surprise was not a huge surprise. So it's like, I get that like it's hard because trailers need to walk that fine line, but for me, that's the Suicide Squad trailers have all been so far on that other side of showing nothing. It's like they're they're showing what is the plot of that movie? They're showing a lot of sound and fury, but yeah, I mean, in three full trailers, there is no indication of a bad guy, of uh, an of antagonistic plot, force, like, of like any plot, sort yeah. of arc they're going to go on. That like with like a main-ish character or anything like as again it's going to be an ensemble cast but like I'm guessing Deadshot's probably going to be the actual main character of the movie because also they are doing a very good or a very bad job of showcasing any of the cast other than Jared Leto uh, Harley Quinn and then Deadshot like yeah. that's the, as far as like you can tell in the trailers those are the only characters in the movie and then there's a dude who's like Killer Croc or something and a lady with a katana and, and other and, people and, and honestly, shoots fire I guess that's kind of my worry is that it's going to be less Avengers or Guardians of the Galaxy and more the Deadshot movie co-starring a bunch of people who yeah. will make no impression like one of the early X-Men movies or something right yes like where was it was Wolverine's, just Wolverine yeah. and you have no one else but yeah I because that's the other thing, though. Basically, all three trailers are roughly the same assemblage of footage, just in a different order with yeah. different music. Like but We got a little bit more Amanda Waller in this one, and I appreciated that because I like her from the comics. I like her, too, and I think Viola Davis is perfect for it. Yeah. Um, we'll see how much she actually gets to do. Probably not much. Yeah. yeah. But we'll see. I Again, I hope this movie is good. It also feels like, man, they've done three already, and this movie's still not coming out till August. How many fucking trailers are we going to watch for this movie? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I think it's because they're trying to course correct the marketing from yeah. Batman v Superman and how sort of like dull the first trailer was. They really want to make this movie seem like I think because it's like the ideal of what Sword Suicide Squad is is like a like sort of like more darkly comic Guardians of the Galaxy. Like yes. that's that's what it should be. I don't think that's what it's going to be, but I think that's what they're trying to now position it as, is like seeing or the audience reaction to Batman v Superman and being like, hey, this will be wacky too. Or off-brand Deadpool. I mean, I feel like that was the other thing yeah, watching this trailer. I, there, it was very aware of Deadpool. Like the opening where it has the DC logo and Jared Leto is laughing over it. Right, yeah. That felt like something out of the Deadpool trailer. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway... That's Suicide Squad, meh. Um, also that night, they revealed this, the first like full trailer. We did a teaser for this, but an actual trailer for Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which right, is yeah. the new Harry Potter spinoff movie written by J.K. Rowling, um, directly written by her, not adapted or anything. And, and it's directed by David Yates, right? Directed by David Yates, who okay. did the last four Harry Potter movies. I thought it was a really good trailer. Like, I don't... Yeah. Like, I, I don't remember much from it, but I'm not a Harry Potter guy, so... I well, and I... That's the thing, is that yeah. I don't... I am a big Harry Potter guy. I have no interest in a Harry Potter spinoff, but I always have an interest in a good movie, and this just looked like an interesting movie. Like, David Yates is a really good director, yeah. clearly, from those last four Harry Potter movies, 
I'm glad they got him back for this. He knows this world inside and out visually. It looked really cool while not feeling like it was just aping what they did on the other Harry Potter movies. Um, it seems like kind of an interesting direction. It's uh, Honestly, compare this to Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad name drops Superman at the beginning. The Fantastic Beast trailer name drops Dumbledore, but does it in a way that actually seems kind of interesting right. as a prequel thing because it's basically you're being introduced to this main character, Newt Scamander, played by uh, Eddie Redmayne. Um, as Colin Farrell is doing the narration there, which I Colin Farrell in a Harry Potter movie makes me laugh so hard because that's one voice I never thought I'd hear in Harry Potter. Right? Yeah, like that's just one thing. Like hearing an American accent in a Harry Potter trailer is fucked up. Yeah, that is, it is strange. No, but I think that's kind of you know they're doing it in New York and in the early 1900s. Like it's all a period and a setting that seems kind of like if you have to do a Harry Potter spinoff. That seems like a pretty cool way to do it. It doesn't. Sure. Yeah. It could stand on its own. I feel like it looks like the kind of movie that. You could walk in and hopefully it'll just be a good movie. Um, and I like J.K. Rowling as a writer. I think it's kind of cool that she's writing the script. We'll see how that turns out. Um, Did she write the scripts for any of the movies? No. Okay. But, I mean, she was very directly involved. And right. I'm sure you know other people were helping her with it if she needed help on figuring out script stuff. But, you know, because that can be a risk sometimes yeah. when authors. Although more it's when authors just directly adapt their own books, less when they write, like, a new story. Right, yeah. Um because, like, Dr. Seuss did that for some of his stuff, where he would write, like, new, you know, cartoons and stuff, and those could be great. Yeah. So, anyway, but... But not um, everybody's Dr. Seuss. Not everyone's Dr. Seuss. I'm not trying to say J.K. Rowling is Dr. Seuss. Most good. people are not Dr. Seuss. Anyway, uh, so I'm looking forward to it. It looks good. It's got a phenomenal cast. I mean, Eddie Redmayne is obviously a very good actor, but, like, his sidekick is played by Catherine Waterston, who was in my favorite movie of the decade so far, Inherent Vice. Um, you've got Colin Farrell in there, which I think is kind of cool casting. A lot of cool people, and I... I wonder if we'll get a Michael Gambon Dumbledore cameo. I think that could be I'm, cool. I, I'll, I bet that they, you're going to get a little yeah. bit of one. I think that would be good. Yeah. But, no, it looks good. And, and I just feel like that... Just compare the confidence of that trailer to the DC stuff. Yeah. And that's why they're doing it. Because, like it or hate it, Harry Potter is something that had an identity and a confidence and a clear pitch. And those movies had creative integrity and things yeah. like that. And that's why... Warner is pushing so hard on the DC stuff is because they lost Harry Potter. That was their bread and butter for 10 years. And at the same time, like a year after Harry Potter ended, Chris Nolan left Batman. And it's like, fuck, we don't have shit anymore. Yeah. So more Harry Potter and bad DC movies. Yeah. And I will say, as someone who doesn't really care about Harry Potter, the fact that David Gates is coming back to direct this one is like the one thing that's like the direction in those last few movies was really good and the way those movies looked was awesome. It was like, even when I didn't love the characters and the plot and stuff, like, as, like, movies visually and then, and, like, the music was also really good. Like, all that was, like, I like, they're good movies. Like, I enjoyed them even if I don't like Harry Potter that much. So it's like, yeah, I will probably end up seeing this movie and, and it will probably be good. And who knows? Maybe you'll enjoy it more because it has no baggage on it. Yeah, like because yeah, the setting does sound a lot more interesting to me than like weird British boarding school. Yeah, so I'm interested in it. Um, so those were trailers. Uh, then the, the big one, though. Last week, Marvel yeah. unveiled the trailer for Doctor Strange. And I'll say it up front. This might be my favorite just trailer trailer for any Marvel movie ever. I think I'd probably agree with you. It's really good. They just threw the fucking gauntlet down on this one. I mean, they did what, like, I've always wanted them to do Doctor Strange, because Doctor Strange is fucking... It's in his name. It's strange. It's really weird. Because it's all, like, Steve Ditko 
at his craziest, like, who is the artist, it, like, like just weird, different, like, cosmic planes and dimensions and crazy shit like that, and just, like, abstract shapes and stuff, and that was, like, if they're going to do a movie, they need to do that, because this could be the most visually astounding comic book movie ever made, based on the source material, it was, like, I didn't really think that they would go full hog, based on that teaser trailer, they are going 100% into this, like, it is, there's some crazy visuals in that, that fucking trailer. It is a. It's just a good trailer because yeah. it gives you very little of. Like it looks like it's stuff from like the first twenty minutes. Maybe. Yeah, it's just it gives you the setup for his origin, which is basically the same it is from the comics. Yeah, um, but they don't go too much further than that. So we don't see him in the suit. We don't see him doing magic, but we see a lot of the stuff around the periphery, and that's enough to make me think this is Kevin Feig and Marvel finally saying, you know what? Fuck it. We have enough money. We can just go insane. Yeah, it's okay. Even if it flops, fuck it. That won't hurt us. I mean, it's honestly, it's like like watching the beginning of, the, I guess, like the whole like the teaser trailer thing. It's like watching it just reminded me, oh, right, the beginning of Batman Begins is totally a ripoff of the origin story for Doctor Strange in a weird way of like this guy who's like down and out on his luck, like wandering around, like trying to like find some sort of answer and like ending up in like Tibet and like stumbling upon some sort of secret temple and being trained in mystic ancient arts that like nobody else knows and like... All of that, like, that is the beginning of Batman Begins. That is 100% the original origin story for Doctor Strange. And then watching this is like, oh, right. That's that's what this story is. This is like the beginning of Batman, Begin, uh, Batman Begins if everyone making it was on, like, just incredibly high the entire time. Which is, what, which is a movie I sincerely want to see. Absolutely. It, it looks really good. Um, you know, what was I going to say? Uh, this is another trailer. I'm looking up just to make sure I'm correct on this. I think the villain in this movie is going to be played by Mads Mikkelsen. It is, yes. Okay. And I just love that we have two trailers now for Rogue One where he's going to be the villain. Yes. And Doctor Strange. You don't see him in either of the trailers, which kind of makes there, me There's a brief glimpse of him like from behind okay. in the trailer. Yeah. Okay. So I like. I just like that Mads Mikkelsen, this, this Christmas, will be the villain in two major movies. Yes. And in both of these movies, I really hope that is his... Motivation is just trying to get home to his mom for Christmas. Like, I just want that to be the motivation for every Mad Mickelson character from now on. Now, why is that? Because that's what his motivation is in Hateful Eight. He's not in Hateful Eight. You're thinking of something. Oh, else. you're right. I'm, yeah. What you're thinking of Michael uh, Madsen. Michael Madsen. That's very Mad- similar names. MMs. Mads Mickelson is Danish. It's very similar names, is what I said. I know, but they're hard. I just think they're hard to get mixed up. No, I get it. Okay. If you don't see them in the fucking trailer. Okay, okay. They're not hard My, to mix up. Michael Madsen would be great casting yes. for these movies, too. You're but, right. But Mads Mikkelsen, Hannibal. You know, yes, that's Casino right. Royale. But yeah, he's... I didn't see Hannibal. No. That's okay. He's cool. You like Mads Mikkelsen. Yes. From Casino Royale. He's good yeah. in Casino Royale. Anyway, so I think that's cool. Um, yeah, lots of good stuff here. I, do we want to talk about the racial controversy of it? Oh, with the Tilda Swinton character? Yeah, and... Uh, and like... I, th- I think, honestly, it is something where I could understand being upset. I would personally wait for the whole movie, because I kind of want to see yeah. if, outside of these two minutes of footage, what the kind of racial dynamic of it is. I would also say, is. like, is, like, you can maybe have a conversation around it if, like, the Ghost in the Shell thing was not happening at literally the exact same time. That's way where more... Where it is a billion times way more egregious. Go on, just explain that for a second. Okay, yeah, so they're making a Ghost in the Shell movie, which is... If you don't know what Ghost in the Shell is, it was a manga that was turned into an anime movie that is very influential and famous from the 90s. That was also then an anime series that is one of the best anime ever, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. That is still, that like, Ghost in the Shell is still going on in anime in weird ways with like Arise and all these weird series that I have not seen. But it's a really great, just amazing Japanese 
property about like sort of like it's very Blade Runner esque and is about like technology and, and it's very Japanese because it's about a very sort of like Japanese relationship with technology and the main character is Major Motoko Kusanagi, which is a very profoundly Japanese name. Yes. I mean, she's a robot, but, like, she's a very Japanese robot. And so in this live-action movie that they're making that they've been trying to get off of the ground for a long time, I never thought it was going to happen. It always seemed like a terrible idea. Yes. But it's apparently they're actually fucking doing it because we got They're filming. A, yeah, they're filming it, and there was a, like, set photo thing kind of released of Scarlett Johansson, who is playing... The Major, that's all we are given for her name. But her name in the movie is Kusanagi. Okay, that seems like... It's Mokuro Kusanagi. Her name is the name for the thing. Yeah. When they released the photo, it just said Scarlett Johansson as The Major, and it is her, like, looking at a mirror with a very bad, sort of, like, blackish-purple wig on. Well, and the thing is, calling her Kusanagi is the... Because you could just easily adapt it to America and give them American names and... Kind of. I, I wouldn't... I would still say, like, no... Ghost in the Shell is so Japanese that it's like it I, I, loses a lot of what it is if you I, change the setting. I agree. I don't think it would work, but I'm saying for the racial dynamic of it, sure. that has happened a bajillion times in film history. Like, right. There's also that someone pointed this out on Twitter. They just released the trailer for that Magnificent Seven remake. Right. That has been done before. Yeah, I, that's a slightly different scenario. It's a slightly it's different scenario. Seven, but, seven Samurai. No, I, but I get it. I'm just saying, if you wanted to do the big Hollywood version, the baffling part is keeping all the Japanese names and stuff intact as your big Hollywood version yeah. and casting Scarlett. And I love Scarlett Johansson. She's not Japanese. No. Yeah. And someone put in a, uh, a frame of just, they, they cut and pasted Rinko Kikuchi in there. She's a great Japanese actress yeah. who you would know from things like Pacific, Pacific Rim. Rim. Yes. I was like, yeah, she would be perfect. Yes, she actually, like, 100% would. And, like, yeah, no, that... They just shouldn't make that movie. No. And, like, because they would never be able to make the movie the right way, and even if they did make it the right way, in a way that could be a good movie, it would not be a commercially successful movie. I don't think it's going to be a commercially successful movie either way. No, it's and it's clearly, it's gone through so many years and rounds of studio filtering, frankly. You know, it's probably going to come out and be kind of nothing. You know, that I looked, yeah. the, the person they're finally having directed is Rupert Sanders, who did Snow White and the Huntsman. And is a commercial director, and he's fine. He's a visually interesting director, but he's a studio hired hand. He's not the guy who is making this because Ghost in the Shell is something he grew up watching, and you know, yeah. is inspired. Like if honestly, if with the Chowski brothers doing this, that's yeah. who you want doing it. If you want American director, and I said brothers, sisters yes. now. Siblings. Sorry, yeah. Well, yeah, no, you're right, sisters. Sisters, now. yes. Um, but anyway, so if you had the Wachowski sisters do it, then that would be a great... And they would probably cast actual Japanese people. Yes, yeah, them. no, they would. Because, but, like, for those who don't know, like, The Matrix is heavily inspired by Ghost in the Shell. Yes. Like, a lot of their work is. Yeah, so, anyway, I... But yes, that's kind of in the background of this. I think the, the Tilda Swinton thing is actually kind of interesting because Tilda Swinton has a history of playing androgyny, um, racial... Yeah. She's really good in a Constantine where she plays an angel. Yeah. What you want. Like, an androgynous angel's really yeah. good. And I was going to say racial ambiguity. And I'm kind of okay with it on that level. Um, you know, I understand it's not perfect, but I, I also think Hollywood has done much worse. Yeah, as far as, is... like, whitewashing in Hollywood is a problem and it's, like, should be discussed and I'm glad that people are discussing it. But, like, this is, especially, again, like, that goes to the shell thing for Marvel is very fortuitous because it's, like, you see, like, the Tilda Swinton thing is, like, the most innocuous way you could do it, I guess is the nicest way to put it. The most innocuous way to be racist as opposed to the, like, goddammit Hollywood way that the Ghost in the Shell movie is doing it. Yeah. 
But Doctor Strange looks great. Yeah. They're letting Benedict Cumberbatch use his accent. Yeah. Which is great. Because if you don't, what's even the point of Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah. And it, it just like reinforces how much Benedict Cumberbatch does literally look like Stephen Strange from the comics. Like, it's Absolutely. really crazy. And I hadn't thought it like in the makeup and stuff. Like I, uh, yeah, he on, needs the, he needs the goatee, obviously. Right on the streets, I would have never thought that, but it's great. When man. he grows that goatee, holy shit, man! Yeah, that dude is busy. Just finished filming Doctor Strange. I guess they're filming Sherlock right yeah. now. He never stops working. It's crazy. All right. Well, anyway, so that is exciting. We're looking forward to that. Oh, and you know, speaking of Marvel, the Civil War reviews are out. Right. Yes. God, I am excited for this fucking movie. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. As bad as Batman v Superman was, it sounds like this is just as good. It's, which is like, you know, that's what you want. That's, that's like yeah. very Doctor Strange sort of thing. Is you need a cosmic balance of like the good and the bad. It needs to come together. It's like you can't have one thing overweigh the other. Absolutely. All right, so that sounds great. Uh, and then we have, I think, the coolest trailer of all of these for Shin Gojira. Oh, right, yes. The Japanese yeah, trailer for well. the new Godzilla. What's the English title of this one? I forget. Uh, Godzilla... Resurrection? Resurgence? Resurgence sounds more what it is. It's I just know it as Shin Gojira. So do I. So okay. it's like yeah, it's I think Godzilla Resurgence sounds like it is. That it's either that or that is the title for Godzilla comic book. I don't know. Okay. Maybe I'll look it up. You talk about it, Sean. Okay, so yeah, it's a it's been like a week and a half since it came out, so like my memory of it is not super strong. But it is like it's it's the first like significant look we've gotten at the new Japanese Godzilla movie, so it's not connected in any way to the American one, which I saw. This is kind of funny. Like on some of the comments, I saw like people as he's like, "Is this a sequel? How is this? Why does this look so different from the last Godzilla movies? Like it's not just, it's not the same. Like it's not. It's Japanese Godzilla. Like don't try to make a connection. Like honestly, don't try to make connections between most Godzilla movies. You'll just really hurt your brain if you do. But yeah, it's the Japanese Godzilla movie. It is Godzilla Resurgence. Okay, good memory. And I'm... Well, I was confused, though, because the Independence Day sequel is also called Independence Day Resurgence. Okay, yeah. And this is fucking me up. Is this, it's the year of Resurgence as a subtitle. It's I guess. Resurgence's time. We've given, like, Revelations a, a break for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. We've resurgence some time in the sun. But yeah, it, it's, a, it's a short little trailer that mostly just shows you... Like, and I'm curious, like, if there's going to be another kaiju in the movie at all, because it doesn't show it. It only shows scenes of Godzilla basically destroying Tokyo, and it's a very dramatic trailer. But, like, the guy, it's, we've talked about this before, but the movie's directed by Hideaki Anno. Like, this is a very anime-heavy podcast today. And he's the guy who's basically the creative voice behind Neon Genesis Evangelion, which we're not going to explain what that is. If you want to find out what that is, just look it up on the internet. But it's a very sort of famous, beloved anime series that is also, like, really stylistic and very much an auteur kind of project. And so you get a sense of that and how he's redesigned Godzilla. And I'm way into it because there are, I think, 27, 28 Godzilla movies now. It's like I am fine with like every couple of Godzilla movies going a bit crazy with their Godzilla costume. I think this is a really cool one. Like he has a giant tail. He's got a really fucked up head. He's I've, got, he's got, he looks like Godzilla from Godzilla vs. Destroyer with like weird red lines emanating from his body everywhere. I'm ready to fucking buy my ticket to Japan to go see this. Yeah. This looks phenomenal. Like, you can tell from frame one, this is a Hideaki Anno movie. Yeah. Like, the the camera angles, the cinematography, which I think is phenomenal. Yes. And then the actual suit, which, thank God it's a suit still. Yeah. You can't do Godzilla in Japan without the suit. No. They're not even trying. That's great. And it looks phenomenal. It's such a different design. That tail is huge. Yeah. Which is cool. It just looks so great. And honestly, what it reminds me of is the first thing... 
Anno ever did, which is the, well, the, like, not ever did, but, like, notably did, which is he was a key animator on uh, Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa. Yeah. And he animated, famously, the giant god monster sequence, which is when the god monster is resurrected and it starts melting and dying. Yeah. That is what, that's the kind of, like, vision he's bringing to this Godzilla, it looks like. Because it's like Godzilla is like an active volcano, almost. Yeah. And he's pulsating, and it looks like he could kind of fall apart or go off at any moment. And clearly, you know... Uh, the original Godzilla, which we've talked about a lot, is all about, you know, the, the nuclear holocaust angle. This is clearly, I think, in reference to the tsunami of a few years ago with the giant tail, with the, like, almost pulsating power plant aspect yeah. of him. And it just seems like a really smart way to be doing Godzilla and very artistic and interesting. So Yeah, yeah I am... More Godzilla movies will always make me very, very happy. Like, I don't even need them to be good, because a lot of them aren't very good, and I still love them anyways, but this looks like it's going to be a very good one. Yep, and it's, it's great. We have good Godzilla going on in America, which is a fucking yeah, miracle. Yeah, insane. And we, have, and we have new crazy auteur Godzilla going on in Japan. Yes. It's like the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. It's a new... I'm just... The, like, it just feels like we're entering, like, a new era. Like, we're finally... We're going to have to have a new name for it. Because it's like... If you're into these movies like I am, you know, there's a Showa era, which is like the original stuff from like the 50s to the 70s, then the Heisei era, which is all the 90s stuff, and then the Millennium era, which was like basically Godzilla 2000 onwards, it's like maybe now it's like a new era. We will have to come up with new names. It's, it's, it's an exciting time in, in our lives, Jonathan. Absolutely. I hope this one comes to theaters in the U.S. I wouldn't be surprised because of the interest in it, because of the Gareth Edwards movie. Yeah. Because I, I did get to see Godzilla 2000 in a theater, and so I always I. remember that. It's, it was kind of cool. It's a good movie. It's yeah. a good one. It's got a weird villain, I remember. Yeah, Orca. He's like an yeah. alien like spaceship that sucks out Godzilla's DNA and turns into, like... All of those movies around that era are about, like, weird DNA stuff, because that was, like, the early 2000s. <laughs> all right, so... That's trailers. Let's move on from that for now. Uh, and talk some other movie news, though, because around all of this was CinemaCon, um, which is basically, if you actually don't know what CinemaCon is, because it informs why they talk about the things they talk about, it's the convention for movie theater owners and okay, movie theater yeah. chains. That's the main audience. Now, other people go there. Press go there. Some regular people can go there. But mostly it is for theater managers and theater chains, and it's studios trying to kind of assuage theaters that they're not about to die. Yeah. Um, so that's why you've got, for instance, all those reports of different studio heads trying to bash this idea of uh, Screening Room, which is that service they're thinking of launching where you can watch theatrical movies at home. Right. And it's not going to happen because the theaters are going to shit a brick about it. Yeah. So anyway. Um, but one of the things that came out from that is that James Cameron got out on stage and wanted to talk about Avatar. And I want to recap this a little bit. Man, when they first this is so good. When this they, is so good. When they first announced sequels for Avatar, the highest grossing movie of all time by far, they said they were going to make two, which sounded totally normal. Like, that often happens. Reasonable. The movie made $3 billion. We're going to make two sequels. Makes sense. And then James Cameron eventually announced it's going to be three, and we've been at three for a while. It's like, okay, that's ambitious, but not unprecedented. The Hobbit just came out. Yeah. We can do that. But James Cameron gets up on stage, announces he's making four Avatar movies at once, and that they're going to come out in 2018, 2020, 2022, and 2023. For some reason, not a two-year gap yeah. there. And they all have dates that are in December that are inevitably going to get moved when Star Wars movies come out there. It's... What the fuck, dude? What what has happened to James Cameron? What, what happened to him in his old age now that it's like... 
It seems like, did he go down to the Marianas Trench and get replaced by some, like, sea-dwelling creature and come back up and make Avatar try to take over the world of Avatar movies? Like, what happened? I, okay, I want to break this down. Because there's a bunch of things here that I think are interesting and exciting, and there are a bunch of things that are baffling. Yes. I will say, I am interested in an Avatar sequel because I like a lot of things about that first movie, and I would be interested to see if in sequels... James Cameron could explore more of the things that were really cool about that universe and not have to worry about the setup and kind of the heavy-handed stuff from that first movie. And just like one of these sequels we've known forever is going to be basically all underwater, I think that will be utterly incredible because there's literally no other person, filmmaker, scientist, whatever, who is probably more qualified to do that than James Cameron, and I would love to see that. And I think, you know, basically he's put together a brain trust of writers. It's like a TV writing room staff. So the four scripts are being written by four different writers. It sounds like he wants them to be separate movies with kind of... They're not going to be like a four-part story, that sort of thing. So it sounds like it could be done well. And as people remind us on Twitter, betting against James Cameron is a stupid thing to do. Every movie he's ever fucking made, people said, there's no way that will work. He'll bankrupt Hollywood and he proves you wrong every time. So I want to be careful with my words here. Sure. The only thing is, if my first reaction on Twitter was that It's not that I doubt James Cameron, it's just that I feel like it would be more sane to make one Avatar sequel, test the waters, see how it goes, and then maybe make more, and the thing is, that would be my recommendation for everything. It's what I would have said about the fucking Hobbit movies, too, and I love Lord of the Rings. So, it just does kind of reek of hubris at a certain point, setting release dates out to fucking 2023 for your Avatar sequels. And, like, if they were announcing it like James Cameron is doing one of these, but then he's bringing other filmmakers in to play in the Avatar sandbox, I think that would be really exciting. But this is all him, and if he's making these until 2023, that's it. That's James Cameron's career. We are never going to see another James Cameron movie that isn't Avatar-related. Yeah. And I find that a little sad. So, I don't know. What What are your thoughts? It's just, Avatar is such a forgettable movie. <laughs> like, that's just, like... Because I'd like, in theory, I kind of agree with your sentiment that it's like, I would like to see an Avatar sequel because there are things about, that's just every movie, there's things about Avatar that is enjoyable. It's like, it's not a bad movie, it's not a terrible movie, it's just like a very dull movie. So it's like, in theory, I would like to see an Avatar sequel, and it's like, there's a lot of James Cameron movies that I really love. But like, when I read, but it's hard for me to really say that I want to see an Avatar sequel because it's like, I kind of don't remember much about Avatar at this point, other than, like, it looked pretty good in 3D when I saw it. But, and that it was really long, and then there's, like, a, a Marine Sergeant dude that gets to a mech that has, like, a big mech knife, and that was kind of cool, and also very silly. Like, that's most of my, that, those are my strongest memories of Avatar. And so it's like, I just, I don't, I just want him to make, uh, like, movies that are not Avatar movies. I don't know. Like, I just don't really want to see more of that universe, of that world. Like, I don't care about the Navi stuff. I don't... I think, like, the aesthetic of those movies was... was interesting in terms of the technology, was not that interesting in terms of the actual art design to me. Like, it was fine. But, like, I don't, like, need to explore more of, like, corners of that world and stuff like that, more corners of that universe. Because most of it just felt incredibly generic, is a lot of what Avatar was. And so, I just... I get that Avatar made so much money, like just incomprehensible bundles of money. I know that. Like even I, Star Wars: Force Awakens could not match it. Yeah, like so. I know that that happened. I don't know how or why that happened. I still think that maybe James Cameron 
has like like brainwashed people or like it's like it's like the greatest Ponzi scheme or something in the history of mankind. It's like how do these like because Titanic? I still like I know why it made that much money, but I don't get why it made that much money. It's like I know why Avatar made as much money as it did. I don't get why Avatar made so much fucking money because Titanic is fine, Avatar is fine, but neither of them just don't they don't deserve anywhere near the amount of money they got. It's like it's okay, so right. improportional. It's interesting because I definitely have more positive views on both these movies than you do, I guess. And but it is still the thing of like I don't feel like I need the Avatar sequel, and that will be the question for me for a lot of people. I do get why Avatar was as well, I don't know if I get it, it was it was as big as it was. I get why it was big, but I do wonder, is there anyone out there really clamoring for Avatar 2, especially if it's a conventional sequel? If it's a, if it's like a Pandora anthology kind of thing, and he's just doing different things on this planet and in this larger ecosystem, but like, let's say Avatar 2 doesn't even have Sam Worthington and those actors. That would make me way more excited, because then you're doing more of an anthology kind of thing, and I think that could be fun. I because can't believe you remember Sam Worthington's name. That just blew my mind. That dude hasn't been in anything in forever. Yeah, I think, I mean, his big thing was right after Avatar, he was in Terminator Salvation. And then, right. and really then nothing. wasn't he in, he was in Clash of Titans, right, the remake? Oh, Batman. God, he was in both of them. I saw both of those. I forgot I saw those. Yeah. I vaguely remember. Yeah. I didn't even see Clash of Titans. For whatever reason, I remember the Avatar dude was in Clash of Titans. Yeah. And that was the last thing you ever heard of him. And then he was in War of the... T- whatever the sequel was called. Wrath? I think Wrath, Wrath of, of the Titans. Titans. Okay. And that would be the last thing I saw him in. Yeah. 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 Like, that was the guy who, like, seemed like he had, like, a fairly promising career as that kind of character. And then... Then he was in Clash of Titans and Wrath of the Titans. He's a, he's a boring actor. And- it's like, he's, he's a boring actor, but the right actor for... That kind of movie. I guess. I just, I even think then, like, I, uh, James Cameron has worked with much more interesting actors for that kind yeah, of role. sure, yeah. Definitely. I don't know. It fucking launched the career of Leonardo DiCaprio. That's, and Kate Wins. I mean, I guess they had movies before then, but Titanic, clearly a launching pad for a lot of things. Yes. Again. And Leonardo the, DiCaprio did everything he could to run away from Titanic. Yes. I was up to and including getting raped by a bear in The Revenant. <laughs> oh, that, just really quick, that reminds me. On the plane ride back from New York City, the guy, like, in the seat, like, a, diagonally across from me was watching Revenant on, like, the <laughs> the screen. And I was reading... Actually, I should just mention this. I was reading the Witcher books on the way, like, on the plane trips and stuff because I... Because XCOM Enemy Unknown Plus for the Vita sucks, and I spent like twenty fucking dollars or whatever on that, and it's terrible. I didn't want to play it, so I, I was reading the Witcher books, and those are really good. They're so and good; you should definitely read them. And so I would every once in a while I'd look up from the Witcher and just see like it felt like for half the fucking plane ride I was just constantly looking up and saying like he is still getting mauled by that goddamn bear because I haven't seen Revenant, and all I know is that he gets mauled for the bear, and it's like a revenge movie or something. It's like. That goes on fucking forever. He gets mauled, but then the after effects go on for a long time. The actual mauling is only about eight minutes. Yeah. The long scene, but not that long. It just felt like it kept on constantly looking. It was like, holy, is that still there? He's still right there. Okay. Yeah. Okay, go I back to what you That is the yeah. funniest. I just can't believe someone would watch that movie on a plane. It was so it's weird. Like, anyway. I thought they had, sorry, I have to interrupt you again. The, actually, the best part about all of that was the first 30 minutes or so of that guy very awkwardly not knowing how to watch it, like, get the movie to start playing and, like, swiping his credit card. But then, like, the thing would pop up on the screen and it's like, 
He was just far enough away from me that I couldn't say anything without it feeling socially awkward because he kept on, he thought it was a touch screen. And so he kept on pressing the screen. It's like, no, there are controls on the chair. It's like, I just so desperately wanted to scream and it's like, it's okay. It's the controls are on the armrest for your chair. He's just like, he would try it and then he couldn't. And there's like, he would look around for a sec and like clearly like not want to broach the topic of discussion because it would make him seem like an idiot so he'd kind of go back to doing what he's doing and then he would try again and it's like eventually he figured it out it's like that was the best I was rooting for that guy deep in my heart when nice. he figured it out anyway so let's just to finish our avatar talk right the for the first of these sequels it keeps getting pushed back now it was supposed to come out this year I think it was at some point supposed to come out last year but anyway yeah. it's gonna come out 2018 now so that means it will have been a full nine years. Yes, fuck, that's right. Nine years between Avatar 1 and 2, and then Avatar is going to become this, like, almost annualized thing. And it's just, I, I really wonder how it's going to do. Like, I think they're obviously going to do well, but I just wonder how well, and I wonder if fatigue will set in quickly, because they're, James Cameron is asking the studio to bankroll him over a billion to make these movies, probably. Yeah. And if it goes south at any point, they're in the tank, and then all the money they made from Avatar One is gone. Yeah, you know, so it's it's really interesting to me. And I just I also kind of wonder. Yes, Avatar made two point seven billion dollars. That's a lot of money. God. But think about it this way: Force Awakens made you know two point two billion. Yes, and that is, but that probably is still worth way more to Disney because on top of that two point two billion, you sell the DVDs and you sell the the toys and toys all that stuff, and like game and it, stuff, and it keeps yeah. going on and on. So they've probably have already made way more on Force Awakens than they have made on Avatar in ten years. Yeah, and I just wonder, like, because Avatar is not a thing that has a rabid cult following. It does not have cosplayers. It does not have you know. A rabbit. The only thing I really know in terms of Avatar merchandise is the Avatar, Avatar fleshlights because that's a funny joke <laughs> on the line. Right. You've seen those, right? Yes. They yeah. made an Avatar movie tie-in game. They did? Remember, okay. Yes. I never played it, but I remember seeing footage of it, and it looked terrible. That's what might surprise me. Right. But you see my point here, right? Like, it yes. doesn't seem like the kind of thing you're going to invest in that because pretty much it's the gross from the movies, and that's about it. Unless you can somehow, these are like way better and make a rabid following you can sell merchandising to. Yeah. So I don't really even understand the full business strategy behind this. Then again, it is James Cameron. Maybe yeah. shouldn't double think him here, but... I'm kind of interested. I also just, it seems so crazy. And we're still two full years off from this first one coming out. Do you think there's any chance we we don't go up to five, six sequels? I mean, because since he announced these, we've doubled. We've gone from two to four. Yeah. Who says next year he's not going to come out and say, we're making seven Avatar movies and the first one will come out in 2020. And it'll just be the rest of his life he'll announce more and more and never actually make them. You find that there's like, he just like has kidnapped the families of every single film director on the planet and is forcing them all to make Avatar movies that every movie from now on will be an Avatar movie till James Cameron the great cinema despot finally draws his final breath and meanwhile M. Night Shyamalan weeps for his Avatar movie Blue (laughs) the last airbender yes anyway more exciting news Sony got out there and announced their new Spider-Man movie. Yes. That they're making with Mar- It's really a Marvel movie that's being distributed by Sony. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's got a title and a logo. Spider-Man Homecoming. I actually really like that title. I like that title as well. And I, the title treatment is fucking awesome. It looks like something from the old Spider-Man cartoons. Yeah. Um, but I like it. I mean, obviously there's a couple of meanings there. It is going to be... He's a high schooler. So yes. that's cool. It is... He is coming back to Marvel finally. And I think that is just... 
that above all else just warms my heart as yeah. a title. I think that it's been a long road for this it's poor guy. Been a very long road. And so I think that's Spider-Man cool. Two was a very long time ago. And I also just love the the indication because it's kind of it's an indie director doing this, and it sounds like it's going to be a little smaller scale. If they just did like a Spider-Man movie that was set the week of Homecoming, and it was Peter Parker having to deal with shit, and it ends with him going to the Homecoming dance, yeah, or it that, ends with him like having a fight with the Green Goblin that like interrupts the Homecoming game. That is how that should happen. But yes, but that's it's that that on its own as an indication that would be a great setup for a Spider-Man movie. Yes, absolutely. And given like now that the Civil War reviews are out and unanimously, whether people like or hate the movie, and no one hates it, but or are likes or, or is not enthusiastic. About it. Everyone says Tom Holland's Peter Parker best Spider-Man ever. Yeah, just like everyone is saying he is the perfect Marvel Spider-Man. It's like Marvel's like unbelievable casting streak just seems to be going on forever. But just the idea, we are getting Marvel's Spider-Man. Yeah. And I love the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. Spider-Man 2 still the best superhero movie. Yes. But it's not quite Marvel Spider-Man because no, we have yeah. this Marvel universe now and we're going to get a fucking Marvel Spider-Man. And that is so cool. Yeah. Then on top of that news earlier today that Robert Downey Jr. is going to at least have a cameo role yep. in it. He'll be in it. There's still rumors. It's kind of gone back and forth that Michael Keaton was being considered for the villain. Yeah. If they actually work that out, that sounds like the best casting ever. Yeah. He would actually be a pretty rad Norman Osborn. Like if that's if they were going Green Goblin, I have no idea. The rumor said I was going to cast Michael Keaton. That's what I would do. Yeah, they've also talked about Vulture. They always want to do Vulture for a Spider-Man movie, and then they never end up doing it. Yeah, for probably good reasons. But yeah, like Vulture, just I like Vulture. But if you're doing a movie, Vulture is very much the villain that like. Spider-Man's, like, fighting at the beginning of the movie that he defeats very easily in, like, the opening credits yeah. or something. You know? So so we've got Spider-Man Homecoming, and it sounds like it will be a fully integrated Marvel MCU movie. Yeah. I, man, I couldn't be more excited. Yeah. Well, Sp- Spider-Man is coming home, Sean. Yeah, and I, like, going back to the title thing for a second, like, I do really appreciate that it's, like, that they didn't just try to do, like, Peter Parker Spider-Man or the Spectacular Spider-Man or, like, the Superior or, like, like the, all the billion different adjectives, the significant Spider-Man or something. They haven't used that yet, but they should. They're going to run out of them eventually, like, for different the, Spider-Man comic book lines. The indubitable Spider-Man. <laughs> the superb Spider-Man. The simply fantastic Spider-Man. The fantastic Spider-Man was fucking Spider-Man really? okay. Fantastic Four crossover. Fantastic Spider-Man exists. But yeah, so I, I appreciate that they just did Spider-Man with a subtitle I think works very well. And it fits with the other Marvel movies yeah. like, you know, Thor The Dark World or yeah. Captain America Civil War or something. Yes. Yeah, so I, I just... Because it was that and then the Star Wars movie with uh, Rogue One were like two situations for someone personally that is very interested in how companies title their, their products because it's such a crazy process that involves like like creative decisions and like marketing and all this stuff that's like I think Spider-Man Homecoming is a very good choice because that the title of that movie could be terrible. After we have Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, Amazing Spider-Man 1, and Amazing Spider-Man 2, like... The Amazing Spider-Man movies shit the bed for the other Spider-Man movies in more ways than just being terrible, but they like made it so it was like a hundred times harder to find a title for your Spider-Man movie. Just going the time-proven route of title subtitle, smart. perfect, yeah. very smart. And and it you know it's not an origin story. They're just going to tell a Spider-Man story. This is what they should have always done. Yeah, it's Zack so Snyder the- with your fucking Batman flashbacks. 
finally we will have a superhero movie that is not the origin of that superhero in any way for his first appearance in that continuity. And I'm fine if, if the death of Uncle Ben is around the periphery or something. Sure, yeah. Because it always is. But, you know, it doesn't have to be. Like, I love the way, like, uh, Spectacular Spider-Man the show handled that, for instance. Where you start, yeah. he's already Spider-Man, later on you learn about Uncle Ben. And I forget who voiced him in that show, but it was someone notable, I feel yeah. like. Anyway... But good stuff. So, can't wait. We're getting a Marvel Spider-Man movie. This is fun. Yeah, man. And Fantastic Spider-Man will never happen because Fox is going to make a million more shitty Fantastic Four They're just going to hold on to that property to, to their dying breath. Yep. Even though they can't get it right. Nope. All right. Um, and then let's get into the video game news stuff. All right. Kind of too many topics here. First off, more reports on the PlayStation 4.5, as it's kind of colloquially known. The PS4K is another name it, it slowly adopted. But this week, Kotaku ran a report. No, no, no. no. Gi- sorry, Kotaku did the initial report. This was Giant Bomb. Yes, Giant Bomb's own Austin Walker dropping some hot fucking news. Yep, Giant Bomb um, had a source that told them more about the PS4K uh, that is codenamed within Sony and among developers Neo. And Giant Bomb's story even has a good picture of Neo from the Matrix. Yeah. So Project Neo, this new PlayStation 4, the basic details, I'll, I'll do the, the quick summary and then you can talk about it some more. Yeah. It will basically be the exact same thing you have now but with slightly bumped internals. Um, and the idea will be that there will be a Neo mode that developers will have to account for in games. So there will be a base mode, which is that the PlayStation 4 or the Neo could play. And so there will be no splitting of the user base. You cannot run a game only on the Neo. You cannot have features that run only on the Neo. You can't split the online community, all that good stuff. But if you want a a system that will run it maybe at a higher frame rate or enhanced resolution or whatever, we don't really know what the upsides would be yet. But you could run it in Neo mode on the, the the new PlayStation 4, and presumably this would also help with 4K gaming and stuff. Uh, it, really, this could not output 4K, no, but it yeah. could maybe up-res or something. Um, so that's the idea. It sounds to me like the least obnoxious way to do this. Yeah. It still sounds mildly obnoxious. Your reaction. Yeah, so this was, like, my reaction this is always kind of, like, has a weird story around it just because this story dropped out of Giant Bomb, like... Literally, as I landed back from New York City, so it was like I was in the cab, like a cab ride back to our house, which is like a fairly significant cab ride from DIA. And so I was just in the back seat and I had my phone out and checking Twitter. And I'm a big fan of Giant Bomb because I think they're they're a great website if you are into video games and video game related things. And so I follow basically all the main Giant Bomb guys on Twitter. It was like scrolling and like it's like my twitter feed was just insane because i follow a lot of games industry people it was like i couldn't get any sense of like what happened like in the past like 30 minutes like what like there's like a hundred fucking tweets about like some like people like ps 4.5 is like scrolling back in my timeline and then seeing it's like okay giant bomb which like very rarely has big news stuff coming out like austin walker who's who's one like he was he got onto Giant Bomb I think about a year ago now and so he just like fucking dropped this hot fucking news story out of nowhere of that yeah it's the Neo so I was like reading the article in the back of the taxi cab and like looking at all this stuff because I'm obviously very interested in, in the game industry stuff and so if you're someone who's listening to this that doesn't know a lot about it I would recommend reading the article that's on Giant Bomb and there's also a much more technically minded article that is on uh, Digital Foundry that it's is good too, yeah. out of Eurogamer I would highly recommend reading both of those Especially the, the, the digital foundry stuff is very important if you are, want the more technical side of, of what this thing is. So, yeah. So, 
it was just a weird situation of like my mom and dad making small chat with their small talk with the taxi driver while I'm just sitting there being like, what the fuck is happening in video games right now? This is such a huge story. So yeah, the the thing with the Neo is that th- I, th- I basically agree with what you your take on it, Jonathan, that it's the least obnoxious way you could do this. I still don't fully understand why Sony wants to do this, like what the use case they imagine for it is. That's the big issue for me because what's the target audience? Because yeah. the main audience that is obviously buying just on a holy amounts of PS4s don't care whether it's the more powerful or less powerful version. Yeah. And frankly, when the Neo comes out, the regular PS4 will probably have a price drop and it will just be boosted by that. Yeah. But so the, you would think the, the core audience for the Neo is probably hardcore gamers like us who would have to upgrade. Yeah. Maybe PC people who are there, they want to get off of PC to console, but that's not a big enough audience to care about, really. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to insult you PC people, but it is a small audience. I mean, like, current sources are, like, basically saying that the PS4 has sold 40 million units. Yes, it's nuts. like, in crazy. So I guess you could have some upgrades in there, but I really just, I do question, what is their target for this? Yeah. And so there's, like, some things where... There's like because all, like basically all of the the news reporting on this comes from materials given by Sony to developers that have dev like neo dev kits that they are working on because part of the the thing is I think in the, any game released in sometime in September has to have a day one patch for when the neo drops which we don't know there's no date associated with these materials for when that happens. But you can make some guesses. So in September, there will have to be a day one patch for when the Neo drops for those games to have a Neo mode that will run on the PS Neo. And then in October, every game will have to launch with that. Like Neo-capable, we'll call them, games. And so that means that probably the PlayStation 4 Neo will drop somewhere in that window, probably like in that holiday. So it's coming a lot sooner than I think anyone really expected. So like Sony is definitely going to have to talk about this at E3 if it's coming out this holiday season. And so, yeah, So I guess the thing with, with the PlayStation 4 is that you, you with the Neo stuff, is that we, we have a lot of these materials that are from Sony, so we know, like, this is happening, it's not rumors anymore, it is so far away from rumors, it's like, this is this, as devs o- are working on stuff for this. This is as open a secret as an open secret can be. Yes, this is, this is like, it is 100% going on, and, like, these materials are... Like, have been corroborated by other sites like your game or like Digital Foundry. Well, because, for instance, in the initial Kotaku report, they were the first to break this. Yeah. And they Patrick say- Klepek, formerly of GiantBomb.com. Yes. Giant Bomb all over this thing. Absolutely. And and Patrick Klepek's report was basically, he, th- he didn't know whether it was exploratory or yeah. really firmly happening. And since then, the more and more sources we get, definitely climaxing with this is that, yes, it is. It's not exploratory. They are doing this. Yes. So what's the almost kind of the most interesting thing then about the materials we have is not necessarily what is actually in them and more what is not. So it's like we don't have a date. There's nothing specifically talking about the Blu-ray drive in any way. And so it's like, is it going to be basically the same Blu-ray drive that the PS4, the current PS4 has? Or like, because it seems like it's a, it would be a very Sony move historically to get a PS4 model out there for like $400 that has a UHD Blu-ray player in it, which would be by far the cheapest yes. of those on the market. That is also has like all these other features, which is basically like the PlayStation 1 played CDs, PlayStation 2 played DVDs, the PlayStation 3 played Blu-rays. And they were all basically the cheapest or competitive with the cheapest 
of those like media players on the market when they launched. And those are the, some of those things that like people bought PS2s to also watch DVD movies. People bought PS3s to also watch Blu-ray movies. That is like a significant and like effective strategy they have used multiple times. And so I'm kind of surprised that there has been nothing confirming that there would be a UHD Blu-ray player in it. Because I feel like if there was, these materials would probably say so. Like it's because it, then the question also becomes: Do they ship games on those? Is that possible to read a game or install off one of those? Yeah, but like I don't think they would because all the discs would have to be compatible with the normal PS4 point, as well point. as the Neo. So like obviously it would it would like that wouldn't be a concern. But like the materials do specifically say that like every game has to be able to run at 4K. Like that's obviously going to be upscaled for basically every game because. Like this thing is more a lot more powerful than the PS4 in with the GPU, and again, like the Digital Foundry report goes into details about how that is, but it's like not so much more powerful that it's not like a three thousand dollar machine. Like PCs can't run like modern games at natively at 4K. So like 4K is a part of this. Like that is one of the reasons why they're doing this because 4K TVs are becoming a thing now. And if it were called the PS4K, like as an advertising thing, to not have that UHD drive would be baffling. Yeah, it would be crazy. Like because like you can watch some stuff technically 4K streaming, but it's not. The that's UH- not like you. You're not. You're not really getting it. The UHD Blu-rays are by far the best you, you can get right now. Yeah, exactly. So, like that's something that is really, really fascinating to me. I'm also like. I guess, like, the thing I'm wondering about this, because this is also something that's not really in the materials that, that have been given so far, is what is their business strategy around the PlayStation Neo and the PlayStation 4, the, the, the Neo and the base models, basically? Is that, like, are they going to do, like, this comes out at basically $400, like, that's that's confirmed. And so, like, so if this is going to be $400, basically replace the, the PS4 at, like, its original market price, are they then going to say, okay, then the base PS4 is now significantly by price dropped to try to push even more units of that? Or is this just going to be, they're going to sell out their stock of the base PS4, and then the Neo PS4 is just going to be the PS4? Because, again, we don't know what it's actually going to be called on the market. Neo is just the code name, because someone at Sony really likes fucking Matrix because they had the Morpheus and the Neo. So... Like, I totally can envision a scenario where they just sell out their stock of base PS4s that are already out there, and the new PS4 is just, that's just the PS4 that's on the market, and this is just their way of keeping the PS4 at that $400 price point throughout its lifetime until they, whenever they decide to move on and make a PS5 or whatever, like, that scenario, I'm sure, is, like, far off if they're taking the sort of half step now. But that's something that also, like... Would would really change the, the the consumer case for this model because I don't see I don't see people like me upgrading to this. I don't no. see most people trying to upgrade to something like this. Like because I I just don't historically that kind of thing like the N sixty four expansion pack, the Sega thirty two X, like that kind of stuff. The the Sony's the way Sony is handling this is the way more consumer friendly based on these materials than those models were, but it is still walking down that same path of some people are going to have this Neo thing, some people are going to have this base thing, and either what's going to happen is the Neo is going to be successful enough that the Neo mode for all these games is really good, and the base mode has like a shit frame rate or something like that, and all the base version of the games is terrible, or 
there's not enough people adopt the Neo thing, and thus the Neo mode on all these games is going to be basically worthless and like not actually upgraded at all, and there's just going to be like a slightly up version of the base PS4 game, in which case the Neo has no real reason for existing. And I was saying, I was explaining this to my brother Thomas. We were uh, playing Destiny together and talking over Xbox Live, and he was asking me, like, what is this PS Neo thing? Because he'd been hearing about it. He yeah. saw me tweet about it. And I was explaining it, and then I said, and he said, well, would you get one? And I said, I really don't know, probably not, unless it was like just so compelling, like every game that's currently at 30 frames runs at 60 plus and stuff like yeah. that, which I don't think will be the case. It does not and seem also, like that's going to happen. When I think about the games that make up the bulk of my PS4 collection, they are cool indie games, they are Japanese imports, they are remasters of PS3 games. Almost nothing that I feel like would automatically benefit from the Neo treatment. Especially because the ones that would are probably major, you know, AAA cross-platform that are probably going to be optimized for Xbox One and PS4 and Neo will just have to be an afterthought. Yeah. Because your install base is 40 million base PS4s, 10 million plus Xbox Ones, and, you know, base PCs and stuff. Yeah. And you're not going to spend that much time on the Neo thing. So I just automatically, I run through all the games I play on PS4 and I think people at large play on PS4. Like, what would Call of Duty make of this? They already run everything at 60. It's it's Call of Duty is on everything already, so they're not going to have a lot of time, I think, yeah. to do the special Neo version. So I just run through it, and I'm like, I don't know the compelling scenario where I automatically feel like I need to have this. Yeah, it's, it is something that's like, the only v- v- version of these events that makes sense to me is that sort of very iPhone-ish model of like, I don't know, of like, this is going to be the new PS4, and like, there's going to be another, like, version of this that's, like, a slightly better two, three years from now that is also then going to be $400. And it's, like, nobody... If you're going to go buy a PS4, you're just going to buy whatever the newest PS4 is, and it doesn't really matter that much. It's, like, it will be slightly more powerful because it might as well be. It is basically... Because the way that, like, manufacturing costs for these kind of PC parts work is that all this... the the same with the Xbox One and the PS4 is all based on AMD stuff for the graphics, uh, for the GPU and everything like that. And so AMD is going to make their newest graphics cards. Like, they're going to make their newest stuff. They're not going to constantly be wanting to make their old, outdated processors and everything. So the, manage- the, the reality of the manufacturing is that it will actually be more cost-effective to make these better than to try to keep on making them like the old PS4 because... AMD is basically going to be mass-producing these parts anyways for, like, computers, right? But Yes, but this is where it gets confusing because with the iPhone upgrade kind of model, it is similar in some ways because 99% of apps you get on your iPhone 6S, which is like what we have, right. you can still run on your old probably iPhone 4S if anyone's yes. still running those. But with games that are really, like, processor-intensive and stuff, once you get to the PS 4.7 or whatever, that won't be a case. Those will not be running on the base PS4 anymore. I mean, that's what I think. And this is actually more Giant Bomb stuff on the Giant Bombcast, which is their podcast. They were talking about this topic, obviously. And one of the Giant Bomb guys, Brad Shoemaker, made the point that that is when you make the PS5. That that's when... When it gets to the point where you don't want to say that the old stuff can still play the new stuff, like I think it's always going to be backwards compatible here on out because I think like the sort of like custom architecture for consoles died with the cell processor in the PS3. Like the Xbox One and the PS4 are based on like common PC technology. So it's like it's all probably always going to be more or less backwards compatible here on out. 
but it's not always going to be Forge compatible. So that's when you would say, okay, like now the PS4 cannot play PS5 games. Like the PS4 you bought in like 2013, that can play the PS4, they can play like Neo, that can play Neo 2 or however, like if they want to make more models in the style, like it can play like all these versions of these games, like acceptably well at the very least. But then once you have the PS5 drop, that is when like the curtain comes down and you have to buy a PS5 if you want to keep on playing the newest games. Like in that, I get that makes sense to me. Like I'm, I'm mostly playing devil's advocate here because I don't really like this model so far. Like I really wish Sony would have an official statement so that they could say why, like make their argument for this console in their own way. Because it's like it's really weird, like having like all these like materials that they've given to developers that are like like are explaining things for developers and not for consumers and stuff like that. So it's like I don't really understand why they would need to do this, but I can kind of see the case for it, I guess. I guess I can, but the PS4 is also ludicrously successful already, doesn't show any signs of slowing. At current projections, it will probably become the best-selling console of all time by the end of its lifespan, especially considering that it will have, no doubt, a longer lifespan than the PS2 did. I, I just... It does seem like to the current user base, because this is not how consoles work. You don't buy a console and then three years later have to replace it. I hate that idea. And I, uh, yeah, and I. And yet, historically, the console cycles have been about five years. Like, historically, the the PS3 were an outlier. But we're still only three years in. And, you know, the other, and I guess you could also say Devil's Advocate, historically, around this time, we get the redesign. And yes, I have owned like four different Xbox 360s. So maybe I'm bitching for no reason. Yeah, because, I mean, if you've ever bought like a slim version of the console primarily, like, for that reason, like, this is that only actually better, really? Yes. Because, like, that's how that has almost always really worked. Yes. But at the same time, it just does feel like. Because I feel like the worst case scenario is oddly the one that makes the most sense, which is that at a certain point the Neo modes are so good there's no reason to play it on the base system. Yeah. But that's the worst case scenario for, I think, everyone because that's just annoying and then you're going to push people off the PS4 to something simpler. Yeah. You never want to make the console seem confusing. That's the biggest problem. That's the thing the PS4 has done so well and why it's sold so easily or sold so well is it seems so easy to just pick up and play everything. There is no hassle to any part of the PS4 the way there is on a mild hassle on the Xbox One. But even that mild hassle has been kind of a death knell for certain things on the Xbox One. Yeah, I mean, that was like a big hit that they took early on. And they're never going to recover from it, ever. I mean, it it was a mistake, you know? And so I'm really... Phil Spencer would 100% agree with that sentiment. And so I'm just curious about this. Uh, What it would do, if it would harm things, whether it would make allow them to sell more... The UHD thing does make sense to a point, unless you consider, I think, best case scenario, UHD Blu-ray will always be a niche thing. I don't yeah, think that's, probably. That's streaming never. is so, it's such a reality now that's like Blu-rays, like almost like didn't even quite like Blu-rays were not DVDs, you know? No, I mean very successful, and but that's the other thing is you. I mean, you're not going to get another physical media format as, to the level of Blu-ray, let alone to DVD to yeah. VHS, that kind of thing. It's just. Things have moved on past that to a certain degree. So, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know. I, I just, I really, as you say, I want the Sony statement because I want to know the core impetus. Yeah. Is it the UHD thing, which would make sense, as you say, with Sony's historical business models? Is it the keeping it at the four hundred dollar price point thing? Is it to have these two on the market at the same time? What is the impetus? It's fascinating. 
it's a little scary as someone who yeah. owns a PS4 and loves it and doesn't want it to get fucked up. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's something where... Again, like, they are, like, if you want to, like, read, like, all the specific policies, because there's a lot of stuff that has come out, like, they are, to Sony's credit, like, based on these things, they're, like, doing this in the best way possible in terms of being, like, you can't make a mode that is only on the Neo version, like, you can't, like, split, like, you're not, we're not splitting, like, the online multiplayer stuff, like, that can't be split, like, they're also, I really like there's a thing where it's, like, the frame rate in the Neo version cannot be worse than in the normal version for, like, in case... The Neo PS4 never takes off, and then nobody ever gives a shit about making the Neo mode. It would be t- entirely possible for a, the technically superior console to have the worst frame rate because the developer never bothered to optimize it. So I really like that they have that uh, in there as well. But it, it's the stuff that they don't have in there, and that like this is all was confusing when the Kotaku report came out. And even though we know a lot more now, it's even more confusing because we know little snippets of what they've been telling the developers. And, like, without, like, Sony, like, this could be incredibly confusing when Sony comes out because it's confusing right now. Or maybe, like, the only reason it's confusing is because we're getting, like, a weird bit of the picture. And maybe when, like, Sony talks about this at E3, it will make a lot more sense. But it's so hard to tell right now. They, they should not wait till E3. Just, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, I, mean, I think they're probably going to say something about it, but, I mean, E3's not that far away. It's not that far away, but I also feel like this story is getting away from them very, very fast. Yes, it got away from them the first time it got out. Now it's like, if, it is overall like the other side of the mountain by now. And look, this is this generation, Microsoft let a lot of stories get away from them early on and it hit them. Sony was very yeah. good about being ahead of things. They should be ahead on this, too. They just really should. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, they should have gotten out in front of this like well before the because like this sort of like leak or whatever was completely inevitable as soon as like these dev kits were in developer hands as soon as like these sorts of materials were given to the developers eventually that stuff would have gotten out of there on like a NeoGAF forum if not on like a, a website like Giant Bomb yeah and I do wonder like what will the performance increases look like on the Neo will it mostly just be to get them running in 4K resolution, at which point, I don't care. I don't know. Yeah, if it just upscales it, it's like whatever. But, or is it going to be major texture and frame rate things, at which point, maybe we have to think about upgrading or something like that. I don't know. But, I mean, you, you agree with me on this. Like, most of the games we play on PS4, what would the better version of those be? Yeah, I mean, like, the only thing is, like, if the frame rate was better, but even then, like, the PS Neo, like, the, like, it doesn't seem like it would be capable of, like, all of a sudden, like, Bloodborne runs at a steady 60 frames per second. That doesn't seem plausible to me at no, all. No, even, like, I'm thinking of, like, the most gorgeous PS4 game, which is probably Witcher 3. My brother has Witcher 3 on his PC, which is about as good a PC as you could fucking build for less than $10,000, yeah. you know. And it runs at about 45 frames a second. I mean, it's a tough game to get running at, like, 60 or something. Yeah. So, I don't think there would be suddenly a Neo mode where Witcher 3 runs at 60. Yeah, like, there are go- there will be some games, like, Fallout 4 is an example that everyone thought of immediately. It's like, there are parts of Fallout 4 that have, like, some of the most atrocious frame rates, like, like, like interior areas in particular. There's one factory near the beginning of the game that has, like... It has got to be, like, 20 frames per second or lower, like, consistently the entire time you're in this big building. It's, like, that is the one area where, like, the Neo would, like, be good. Like, I can see it, like, coming in and doing some business is for games that are have that have an inconsistent frame rate trying to hit 30 on the PS4 base. Then the Neo could fix that up. But most games, like, Dark Souls 3 has, is not, like, 
amazing with the frame rate, but it's basically 30 frames per second. It's like, it's fine. Like, it'd be nice if it was a little more consistently 30 frames per second. It'd be even nicer if it was 60 frames per second. But, like, I don't really care. Like, it's more than playable. Like, Fallout 4 is an example where, like, the frame rate is bad enough that it, like, significantly impacts the enjoyment of the game in certain areas. But that's very rare. Yeah, but that's extremely rare for a AAA game. And the only other devil's, like, kind of reverse devil's advocate, I guess I need to play here is... The, th- the, the, the thing of... Uh, people are going to call me on this because, yes, I buy every new iteration of, like, the 3DS. Right, the new I would, the 3DS is more or less this. I, I would argue that a handheld is very different in this kind of scenario for a couple I reasons. Agree, yeah. Like, let's go through the three 3DS versions. Because we could also go to the old DS versions and stuff, but I'll just go with the newest stuff. So, original 3DS, good system and everything... The second version was the XL. That was a pretty obvious upgrade because your only input, you know, or output thing with the 3DS is the screens they give you, doubling the size of those screens and also fixing some cosmetic things that that first system had was a big thing just on play, basic playability. Yeah. And so I thought that was more than worth it as an upgrade because I use my 3DS a lot. The new 3DS kind of like this in that it had some bumped internals which was more for system level stuff than it was for games honestly. Um, although they initially advertised they would do some game stuff. They really haven't. They really yeah, only ever well, did. Like Xenoblade Chronicles, yeah. I think was the one. Although some games, you know, you have the C-Stick 4, which is fantastic to have that on Smash Bros. and Majora's Mask and things like that. Really nice. Um, and it was just such a better build of that console. More solid. Looked better. 3D was hugely improved. All of those things that if you like using your 3DS... That was worth the improvement. The difference with a home console is that how the console looks or feels in your hands does not matter. Yeah. If it was like radically redesigned controller, I guess it would be different. But the PS4 controller is fucking perfect. So yeah. whatever. Um, you know. So that's. I just don't. I don't think that's a fair comparison because if you're buying like a new version of your. Also, you know, your 3DS just has a lot more wear and tear daily because you have to hold it to play it. Something like that. You know. Yeah. So handheld redesigns are just to me a completely different thing. Although to play Devil's Angels Advocate, the like one of the common arguments made, uh, like like sort of against the idea of the PS Neo, is using Hyrule Warriors Legends for the yes. Nintendo 3DS. That like I haven't played the game personally, but evidently on the base Nintendo 3DS, the frame rate is awful. It's unplayable. It's fine on the new Nintendo 3DS, and yes. so like that is that is the. Like this maybe is a slightly grandiose term, but that is the nightmare scenario. That is the like the neo like developers just take the neo thing for granted, and they will just design for it, and then the whatever the base the PS4 base frame rate is is whatever it is, and they don't give a shit. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but it it might like it's a possibility, and that that is like. That is basically, I think, the worst case scenario for this is like for the 40 million people, us included, that have bought a PS4 to basically be sort of like extorted into buying a Neo just because the quality of the games in terms of like just the raw playability of them uh, tanks so much that you are basically forced to. Because it's like, because if every game ran like Fallout 4, I would have to buy a Neo because I would not be able to take that because some games would be basically unplayable. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I, I don't think... And the other thing is, like, this year, I just can't even think of a single game on the horizon that would benefit significantly from this. The big releases this year for us are things like Persona 5 and Final Fantasy fifteen and things like that. I mean, there is Uncharted 4, which is Uncharted like 4. a technical, like, sort of spectacle. Yes, absolutely. But I also think Naughty Dog didn't make that for the Neo. Maybe they, when they go back and do it, the Neo version could be really cool and stuff. Yeah. But 
I don't know. Like, I, I don't think there's any going to be any problem with it on the base version. Is all no, I'm saying. I don't think so. Like, I'm just trying to... I can't even foresee a game where there's a possibility the Neo could suffer in any notable way. Like, Uncharted 4, obviously on the PS4, will be A-plus fantastic performance-wise, probably, from the moment it launches. Yeah. Doesn't mean it couldn't be improved, but I'm saying I just can't imagine a scenario where you would, like, need or really want... Like, knee-jerk, you'd really need to get that Neo version. Well, again, like, it is if the frame rate on the PlayStation 4 version is yes, terrible. Like, yes. that, that is the scenario. I know, but I'm just, yeah, like, there's not, I, I'm not thinking of a Fallout 4. I guess uh, maybe a Mass Effect, but that's never been a problem, so I don't know. It's weird. I mean, yeah, like, I don't know. It, I, I can see it happening. I don't think it will. Like, I really, like, I think the most likely scenario is either the Neo drops at the $400 price, the normal PS4 just gets sold out and goes away, the Neo thing becomes whatever, like, that's just the PlayStation 4 now. Like, that is one scenario, and, like, that, like, is, like, kind of whatever. The other scenario is they are selling both of them at the same time. The PS4 gets a fat price drop when the Neo comes out. People buy even more fucking normal PS4s. Nobody buys the Neo. Nobody ever gives a shit. The Neo mode is never anything significant, and things continue as normal, and there's a weird... Like conspiracy theory part of me in the back of my head that's like that's what it is all along, motherfucker. Like but see, they've just been planning the PS4 price drop the whole time, and it's this whole scheme. I I don't think it's a scheme, you know, it's but I not. but I do think the second scenario is the more likely one. I honestly, think it is, yeah. Because what developer is going to prioritize the possibility of neo buyers over the forty million very real buyers that exist right yeah. now? Yeah. No one. No one is going to. In their right mind, is going to make that decision. I mean, that's how it's always played out. Like this yes. is like this is a little bit different than the 32x scenario, but it is not that different. No. Well, okay. So that's looking at the future of video game consoles. Why don't we go ahead and look at the past? Because right. this this week, another significant announcement. We're going to pour one out for the Xbox 360, which Microsoft announced they are ceasing production. They will sell through their current stock. And that's it. The Xbox Xbox Live will stay on for the 360. You can download your games. You can play your games. They're not doing anything with that. And they will continue to support it in some ways because they have backwards compatibility. So the 360 will always be part of the Xbox One. But this is kind of significant because this is, depending on how you want to categorize the Wii and the Wii U, this is the, the first of the, the two consoles from the last generation to bow out. The PS3 is still, as, we, as far as we know, in production and everything. Yeah. So the, the Xbox 360 is saying goodbye for the Xbox One. And, you know, not an understatement to say for both of us, the Xbox 360 was a pretty fucking enormous part of our lives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is... Like, like the PS3 eventually sort of, like, caught up to it, and, and then eventually, like, in sales, overtook the 360 a little bit. But the 360 was the console last generation that led that generation. Like, absolutely. Like, the... the the multi-platform games were best on 360. The 360 had the best infrastructure. It had the best, like, like the online stuff. All of that it was was what that was. What that generation was. That was the generation where HD happened, and that was the generation where consoles became became like a full platform and not just a thing you put a disc or a cartridge into. It became a thing where I'm going to turn on my console and it's going to go to a home screen, and then I'm going to go to a video game. And the 360 was better at that than the PS3. Sometimes, I mean, you know, eventually they they there are some UI redesigns that happened that were not the best, but even then, I would say that it was still basically like I would say the online functions at the very least were always better than the PS3. Yes, that's not debatable. Yeah. I just mean the the process of actually getting to play a game eventually on the 360 got untenable and annoying. But no, for the majority of its life, 
360 was a great console, and it's yeah. almost easy to forget it now because of how rapidly things changed over its lifespan since it, you know, it, since it kind of gave way to the Xbox One and the PS4. But yeah, I mean, this was 10 years ago now, this year. Yeah. Well, no, 10 no. years ago last year. Yeah. It's 11 but years this is coming up. I got it the year after it came out. I got it in 2006. Yeah. So it's been 10 years for me this year, 11 it's years for you. It's been, actually, like, cause I got it the spring of 2006. So oh, okay. It's, so it's actually probably about and it was, 10 years, almost like right now. And it was summer of 2006 for me. So yeah. 10 years, um, I have more memories with the 360 than any other console. Yeah, this is probably true um, for me, too. I, it's the console that made me into a gamer, someone who I have played games all my life, but mostly I was a kind of handheld person. I did a lot of other... I didn't feel all that, you know... I felt invested in certain kinds of games, but I didn't have kind of the breadth or depth of gaming experience that I had until I picked up an Xbox 360. The first game I put in there was Halo CE, so it was kind of it was also an Xbox yeah. for me. But to be fair, I think that was true for most people because the Xbox sure. 360 sold way more than the oh, original yeah, Xbox, the, yeah, the OG. So a lot of people got introduced to Xbox games on the 360. That was their first one, and you know that's where I I did initially play Halo One and Two on friends Xboxes, but on my own, you know, played it there, and then Halo Three, and just so many, uh, literally countless games for the 360 that I have played and loved. And experienced and just, you know, learning about online gaming and getting into the idea of, again, a console being a, you know, multimedia platform and all these things. It I got really kind of sad and nostalgic when I heard that announcement this week. Because it's like, oh, yeah, that is firmly in the past now. It's weird. And I haven't really actively used my 360 in two or three years. So, yeah. you know, it's it's not like this is a new thing, but it just, like, put it in perspective. Yeah, I mean, it is for me, like, thinking back to the Xbox 360, in a lot of ways, the 360 was the first console I owned that was really current. Like, I had the N64 before, like, the PS2 and stuff came out, but, like, like right, like, we got our N64, like, right before those consoles started coming out, and then I got my, like, GameCube and Xbox. Both of those, like, came sort of late into those console lifetimes, because I basically got... I mean, my brother got the GameCube, and then I think like half a year later, I got the Xbox because I played Halo at my friend's house, and then I said, like, I I want to play this game more, and so I'm going to get this console, and the Star Wars game looks really dope, too, and guess what? That Star Wars game, Nice of the Old Republic, was pretty fucking dope. So those were basically the only games I played a lot on my original Xbox World was Halo, Halo 2, Nice of the Old Republic, and Nice of the Old Republic 2. Like, there, I played some Jade Empire and stuff, like some other RPGs. But that was mostly what the original Xbox was for me because I didn't have it for that long until the 360 came out. And then, like, I wanted to get a 360 right when it launched, but we couldn't get it because they sold out really fast. Because that yep. was, like, back when consoles, like, had all, like almost sort of, like, a forced scarcity to them. It was, like, really frustrating. So then it was, I remember very clearly, we went on a trip to, I think we were in Las Vegas, because we were, we were, it was a spring break trip for my brother, because he played baseball along with every other sport on the planet. So, like, he, like, his college, high school, Golden High School, was in some tournament, I think, in Las Vegas, because that happened a couple of times. And so we were over there in that general area. It might have been Arizona. And then while we were there, I remember we were in, like, a Walmart or something with my mom, and we were shopping, and so I was like, oh, there's an Xbox 360 in this random Walmart in the middle of, like, fucking Arizona, wherever we are. Let's just get this. <laughs> because, like, we just couldn't find any in Colorado. So we got one. 
then like drove back, had it like it was like a maddening like week of my life or whatever of like we had this fucking Xbox three sixty in this box in the back of our goddamn car of like a rental car that was like we need to get home because I just want to play this fucking thing. And we got that and we got like uh, Oblivion on it because Oblivion was the first game I got because I was not going to play fucking Perfect Dark Zero because I had a friend that got an Xbox 360. The same friend that I who I played Halo with that I got an Xbox for. Then like I played Perfect Dark Zero with him when he got his 360. That game was not very good. So uh, so we had that, that 360. We, we eventually got back home. It's like plugged it in, played some Oblivion, and then the rest is history. I don't. I don't remember what my first 360 specific game is. Let me try to see if I can figure this out. Because I got. My I th- wait. I think I have a memory of you telling me what it is. I, okay. I remember being gonna very angry. I, let me go through this. You're going to say it's Sonic 06. It's not Sonic yes. 06. Well, you said Sonic, that to me once. No, no. Sonic 06 was the first game I played on an HD TV. Oh, okay. When we got That's still fucking horrible. When we, it is, but when we got our 360, we still had a tube TV, and we did for like the first year of that console. I originally played Halo and Halo Two on a tube TV and stuff. I mean, was, so did I. Right. Most people did, obviously. Yeah. So, um, but no, the first two games I had for it were Halo and Halo Two, which were obviously original Xbox games, yes. but they worked on the 360. I played um, a lot of Halo Two the first year I had the 360 online. I'll say that much. Yep, absolutely. And I, I actually didn't get Xbox Live until the following summer because my parents were kind of cheap. Yeah. And I didn't have a lot of money, so I, I played a lot of local stuff with my brother and my friends. Because um, I, my, when I got the Xbox, it might have been later, like in the fall, because I think it might have been a birthday present that year. I was 13. And uh, I got my my dad had gotten some deal on eBay or something and got four controllers with it. So I have always had a surplus of 360 controllers. So I would I played with a lot of people with it anyway. Yeah. So it was fun. Um, but yeah, so my first two were Halo and Halo Two. But then I don't I really honestly don't remember what my first 360 specific title was. I know I played Gears of War at your house, but I never mm-hmm. played it much on my own. So I don't know, I'd have to go through and try to figure it out. Yeah. Sonic 06 was an early one, definitely, that my brother I mean, brother it was got. an early one. It's 2006. Yeah, it's, it's something my brother got, and I never, oh. I honestly never made it out of the first level because the loading screens just made me want to kill myself. Man, that game. But I beat that game. You I don't beat know. that game? I beat that game out of hatred, out of spite. I loved Sonic the Hedgehog, and then that game came out. It was like... God damn it, like, Sonic Heroes was, like, a warning sign, because Sonic Heroes was okay, but, like, like those games were going downhill, and then Sonic 06 came out, and it's like, I fucking finished that game. I hated every goddamn second of it. I honestly, I mean, speaking of Sonic, in terms of early, like, 360-only titles, I remember arcade games better, like Marble Blast Ultra, and right, Hexic yeah. HD, and things like that, and that they started releasing... Sonic the Hedgehog like for Genesis and stuff yeah. and I think that was the first time I got to play original Sonic at least 2, 3 and Knuckles was on Xbox Live Arcade I had played I don't remember where I originally first played Sonic the Hedgehog I never had a Genesis so I didn't play it there yeah. but I might have played it I might have played that on a GameCube release they had it on somewhere yeah because there were like a billion okay. Genesis collections back then yeah but I didn't really get fully into those until the Xbox Live Arcade releases which they those now, are really good versions of those games they're, they're now all on uh, backwards compatibility are, on yeah. the Xbox that's my favorite thing about the Xbox One now is the backwards compatibility for arcade games is fantastic it's so good. You got Doom. You got the Sonic games. Yeah. You got Sonic CD. You got Streets of all the Genesis ones. Streets of Rage. It's great. Yeah, you can get all that stuff. Yeah, Sega is uh, on top of that backwards compatibility for yeah for 360. I hope they get the rest because the the ones the two Sonic games they don't have that they should are Sonic and Knuckles and Sonic Adventure 2, which have right. also have really good 360 versions. And I wish- I wonder with Sonic and Knuckles if there's a lot of issues around there, like because if you had Sonic 2 
and you had Sonic 3 and you had Sonic and Knuckles, you could play Sonic 3 and Knuckles and Sonic 2 and Knuckles because okay. that's how I played them. Right, yeah. They, they just have Sonic 1, 2, 3 and CD right now. Yeah. So anyway, we'll see. Um, that's a tangent. Yeah, that's a tangent. But no, I mean, it was a big part of the 360. You could download cheap little bite-sized games. Oh, yeah, man. Xbox Live Arcade. Xbox Live Arcade is a revolution that we could write a fucking book on. I yeah, mean... I mean like, because that's actually something I miss is there were a couple of those years there in the middle era of the 360s life where they had the summer of arcade thing before they kind of like ran into the ground near the end and then just got rid of it. And now they don't even use the Xbox Live Arcade name anymore. But like, there are some of those games like Limbo and Bastion and fucking Shadow Complex. That's a great game. Like, that, that, like, these really great sort of like weird middle tier games that some of like, like, Shadow Complex was made by Epic, you know, like, these are like, some of the people that were making games for uh, Xbox Live Arcade and those like Summer of Arcade promotions were like big game studios making these like smaller in scope titles that were downloadable and but that were like just as like Shadow Complex was one of the best games of its year when it came out like Braid and Bastion as well because Braid was another Summer of Arcade game that yeah. like is one of like the famous sort of like. Like, I feel like the legacy of that, weirdly enough, lives on more in the PS4 than it does in... It does. Like, like the, the indie scene kind of left... Ex- because Microsoft adopts some very anti-developer yeah. policies. I mean, that's one of the stuff. things about the 360 is it was one of the first consoles that was around long enough to have these weird ups and downs and peaks and valleys yeah. that other consoles really don't have. Like, the SNES was just a hot streak from start to finish. Yeah. The N64 had... You know, a couple of good years and then kind of just fell off. Yeah. And you have things like that. The 360 went up and down and up and down in some weird ways. Um, as, and we'll have to talk about the UI in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But let me, let me skip forward a little bit. Okay. The, the Xbox 360 took off for me with Halo 3. I mean, that okay, was yeah, the yeah, moment. 2007. That's the moment when it just kind of started consuming my life. And I've said it before. I will say it again. I had, up to that point and probably up to now, had never, have never been more excited for a game and maybe for anything as I was for Halo 3 that year. September 25th, 2007, motherfucker. It is burned in my brain that date, the where I was when I bought it, how I got it, the size of that fucking collector's edition box, playing it for the first time, putting it in, all of those things, how I, basically my brother and I played it three nights, three levels at a time, co-op, just every detail of getting Halo 3 and finally having that. Like, I remember... It was my brother and I saved up all this money and I had the cash in a white envelope that I took to GameStop to pick up our pre-order. And that's how I got it. And my older brother, Christian, who was living with us at the time, you probably haven't heard a lot about because he, um, half-brother, so he doesn't, didn't always live with us when I was a kid, um, about 10 years older than me. But, you know, he could drive. I couldn't. I was 14, you know. I'm not yeah, going yeah. anywhere. Um, and, and got Halo 3 and... Yeah, Halo 3, one of the best games ever made. I mean, like, I have almost undoubtedly played more Halo 3 than any other video game I've ever played. Like, I had played so much Halo 3. I basically played Halo 3 kind of every night from, like, 2007 to 2010. Like, because it was like... I mean, it's not entirely true, because it's like, you know, I've played a lot of Call of Duty 4 online. Like, I've dabbled with Halo Wars a little bit when that came out, because the 3v3 in that game was actually kind of fun. It, but, like... But, like, even, like, when a game like that, when, like, Modern Warfare 2 or something came out and, like, all my friends would get on that for a little bit, or, like, Gears of War or something, we would always come back to Halo 3 and, like, did that for fucking years. Even when Halo Reach came out, sometimes we'd go back to Halo 3 for some of the custom games yeah. that were only on Halo 3. Like, that, I, that the but, online ecosystem for Halo 3 was something that, like, I had never experienced up till then and still have never quite fallen into with a different game. No, I mean, we could talk about... 
great 360 games and overwhelming experiences for days. Yeah. I mean, you just listed off a bunch that could be topics on their own. Call of Duty 4, the Call of Duty effect after Call of yeah. Duty 4, the brief period where Valve was a big thing on the 360. <laughs> the and box. we got Left 4 Dead 2 and the Orange Box and Portal 2, and those are some of the best games ever made all there. Like and EA's glorious shining moment before like they started making kind of bad games again where they had like Dead Space in Mirror's Edge in Mass Effect, like... All like in the same year or two. Yep. It's like, what is up with you, EA? All the franchises that started around that period that are technically multi-platform, but we remember them from the 360. I mean, Gears of War, just to say it's like that was like the 2006 release. That was like the first really big 360 exclusive Uh, shooters. You know, Gears of War 4 is kind of gearing up for its big marketing push as it nears its release in October. And it just made me think about Gears of War 3 and how oh. much I fucking loved that game. That game was so good. So good. Like, how many hours I spent... Pl- I just remember, because that was 2011, yeah. had my slim 360 in my dorm room, yeah. and I played so much Gears of War 3 as a freshman in college. It yeah. was such... The multiplayer on that is kind of second only to Halo as my favorite shooter multiplayer. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, man. Because that was like... Because that is like the weird thing. Because, like you know... We we knew each other before the 360 came out. We were basically friends yeah. before the 360 came out. Yeah, because I like I remember very specifically like with the Halo Three stuff, having a lot of conversations with you in like the courtyard at lunchtime yep. in high school when we were freshmen about how fucking excited we both were for Halo Three because we both were getting Legendary Edition and everything. And it's like and it's weird to think about like that whole span of our lives of like that being like the beginning of high school basically. Through most of college, and then like kind of halfway through college is when the PS4 dropped. It's like, yep. that's a huge it's, span it's of time. It's so crazy. The 360 was with us for the end of middle school. All of high school was the 360 for me, and that's obviously a part of my life that is burned into my brain for many reasons, but the 360 was there for us the whole time. Yeah. It was what I took with me to college. I had my 360 and a TV. That's what I brought. It meant I didn't watch Blu-rays for like a year because the 360 just right. had a DVD drive, so I would I brought some DVDs and stuff, and... I had the 360 with me for I had that slim redesign, which that's my favorite version of it. Which not the last redesign, the second one where it had the yeah. touchpad button, the the cool black one. I think my brother's got that now. I have I still the 360 I have at my house now is the the, the super old one that doesn't even have Wi-Fi on it. So right. I have to, and I've lost the wireless adapter. So I have to plug an Ethernet to it Damn. to make it run. Um, but anyway, so. Yeah, I had it for so long, and then yeah, eventually the PS4 came out, and I kind of dabbled with the PS3. Both of us did at the end of that generation. Yeah. Um, I had I, my great PS3 experiment. Yep, I had the PS3 from 2009 onwards. I got it in 2009, but I got it mainly for a, as a Blu-ray player, right. um, and I mainly used it for that and some exclusives, and then it was in the last couple of years that I really got into it, and I love that console too, and I could talk about that, but definitely for nostalgia's sake and impact on my life and, and on our lives, it, yeah. the 360. The 360 is just legendary to us. Yeah, I mean, God, I have so, like, thinking about, like, early Xbox 360 now that, like, you've got, because I haven't thought about that in so long, because, again, that is, like, for us, for reference, is, like, when we were, like, I was, like, eighth grade and freshman in high school. Like, that is, like, early 360. Yep. And so for me, like, it was a lot of, like, because I because it took a little bit. Like, I had the 360 for several months before we got Xbox Live. It didn't take my family quite as long, but it took it still took a bit of convincing to my right. parents to, to buy into it. But, like, I just remember going over to friends' houses and being, like, like, when my friend got Gears of War, like, a couple of days before I did, and, like, playing Gears of War at a friend's house and being like, holy fucking shit, the multiplayer in this game is crazy. I've never played a game like this before. Check out, I was like... 
13 years old, so I was pretty into the chainsaw on an assault rifle thing. Was working pretty well for me at that age. Oh, it's t- it's timeless, Sean. It's like it's timeless, but it, it's it's a little bit more effective at a yes. certain time in a young boy's life. And yeah, so like you know, the Gears of War. I remember Dead Rising was a huge game for me early on, and I have a super distinct memory of like one of the first things I ever did when I got Xbox Live was playing Dead Rising, trying to get these zombie genocide achievement or whatever, where you have to kill like 52,500-something zombies. That's like the population of Willamette, Colorado. It's like, so that's like the big achievement that you're like driving this car through this like underground area is like basically the only way to get it, to just run over hundreds and hundreds of zombies and just doing that, trying to get this achievement. This achievement is something we'll have to talk about in a second. And while doing that, having my like headset on and like getting into a private chat with my friend who was like the, the my friend that got like was that gateway to all this Xbox stuff and like chatting with him while he was playing I think he's playing fucking Chrome Hounds, that mech game that came out early with 360 lifespan. And like him playing that and me playing Dead Rising and just like chatting over like this console system and not having to use like a telephone or like my first cell phone I ever owned at that age. Like that stuff was mind-blowing to me. And just, like, having that evening where I was, like, basically hanging out with my friend, chatting while we were both playing different games, and he was at his house, which was, like, an hour drive away from me now, and me at my house, like, in my basement. Like, that was fucking nuts at that age. It was nuts, and at a certain point, like, when I went off to college, it was this link I had to my brother and family back home. Yeah. And my friends, you know, at other places, um, you know... Uh, the, the 360 was something we turned on and used every day of our lives almost for some of the most important and formative years of our lives. And now I understand why people, you know, these days talk about like the Super NES in those kind of reverent right, terms. Yeah. Where I have immense respect for the Super NES. Some yeah, of my favorite absolutely. games ever are Super NES games and I'm always getting to discover ones that are new to me and I love it. But I will never have that specific connection. Yeah. But I do for the 360. Yeah, absolutely. And, and more uniquely for the 360 than, frankly, I do any other console. Because like, I, like it's kind of for me as well. Like, it's, I, like, I have very specific memories of the 360. And it's weird. Like, I, I have very specific memories of, like, the eras of the Xbox 360 because it yep. was such a long-lived beast. Absolutely. I mean, let's talk about that. Let's First off, achievements. I mean, yeah, let's if, go through some topics. If What do you think... I think I might know the answer, but what do you think is the biggest contribution the Xbox 360 made to gaming history? Okay, that's a fucking crazy question. Well, let's break it down. It's, I mean, there, it, there's a it series the online, of them. Okay. Is it the online stuff? Is it the multimedia stuff? Or is it achievements? I think it's one of those three. I mean, for me, like, the, I mean, the biggest thing is the way because I think the online stuff and the multimedia stuff is the same. So okay. it is for me. It is the console as a platform of like the Blades interface and having like downloadable stuff that's like it's just connected to the internet so like you can go to the store you can like download like have downloadable games you have normal games you have a friends list you have chat you again like you have game invites that are like handled on a universal level that is not like individual systems and you have a fucking gamer tag you have a profile that's like was not like like you kind of had that on xbox with like original xbox live but like it wasn't really a thing and you like like, remember all the weird stuff that they had that, like, I think is still, like, legacy in Xbox Live of, like, I'm in, like, the underground zone, and I'm, like, in the pro zone. God, I forgot about that. Crazy shit like that. Or with the, a feature the 360 had that, like, the PS4, I kills me that it doesn't do this, is that the 360 had a feature buried 
like deep, deep down in its UI where you could go into your account settings and set game preferences for different game genres. And most of them never did anything. But the one that worked in every game I ever played on the Xbox 360 was Look Inversion. Because I play Inverted because I am an advanced human being. I'm not like you you slobs that play Default or whatever you, you, you plebeians call it. So I played the, my, with my Y-axis Inverted like a real like evolved creature. And it's insane that you it normally, like in, when I was playing normal Xbox games or now that I'm playing PS4 games, I have to go into every single game and go into the settings and say, hey, fucking just make it inverted. For whatever reason, among all the random little things you could tweak in those settings with the game profile thing that they had in the 360 that never did anything in any game ever of like changing your color or your look sensitivity and all this other stuff, the one thing that always worked was it always set my inverted as default in every game I played. And that was fucking awesome. Like and it it is stuff like that that is like this account level system this 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 base system like home screen concept that is like sort of a midway between a PC and what like the, the original Xbox and PS2 were like that innovation and how well they did it because like the PS3 had similar concepts but much more poorly executed that was the 360's dominant achievement to me absolutely and I think you know there are things within Wait, all of dominant. Achievement. No, it's good, good, good yeah, pun. Good go. pun. I just wanted to you know, I, sprinkle on that a bit. I, I gotcha. No, but I think one of the other things that is so remarkable is that while none of the three main UIs were phenomenal on their own, yeah. some parts of that system have never been done better. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, the overall no, yeah, the just, party interface. The party interface, yeah. never done better. Going into just the basic stuff about storage and everything. Right, the yeah. PS4 does it very well, but in some ways not as well as the 360. And the jewel. Just hitting the jewel, it would bring up that thing... Of your home menu, the Xbox guide, the yeah. Xbox guide, and you could just do everything from there. PS4 and Xbox One. The Xbox One does that miserably. The yeah. PS4 does it pretty well, where you can go up and it's just right there on the ribbon. Still not as immediate and convenient as the Xbox guide. Yeah, yeah, no, like like it is that like system level stuff. It is that, and that is actually that is the thing. It is, and it is specifically for me. Even though I know it was way worse. It is that blade, that sick blade coming out of the left side of the screen whenever you press the jewel button. That's like, and you could like customize the way the blade looked. And I had a Halo 2 theme and it looked shitty, but I had it on there anyways. And you could never read anything because of like all the different colors on it. And like just being able to change like the color of that stuff and the color and like the pictures on your home screen and stuff like that. But just whatever game you're playing at any moment, even if it's in a cutscene or whatever, you press that button and the sick just silver blade just slides out of the side of the screen and you have your friends list there and that's how you, where you go to go into party chat or go back home or you can pop like the disc tray and stuff or you like I ought- you hold it down to turn off the console and stuff like all of that like I have so much nostalgia around those features. I had totally forgotten the guide in the middle of the screen wasn't introduced until the NXT. Nope, yeah, that was the NXT. I forgot innovation. that it had. I had until this day, Sean. I would never have again remembered the blades coming out from the right because oh, it basically did all man. the same stuff. I've, but now it's vivid. I, and I love that. So good. It's so like, good. It was super slow. And when you like look back on it now, you realize it like the NXE version of it is way better. But there is a style to the blade that like I will never forget. And it was genius. At the time, it was this innovation that really left such a mark. So amazing. 
But let's talk about those three UIs. I mean, okay, you yeah. had the original the Blade system. Blades. Then the NXE, which was this unprecedented thing of making an UI upgrade into this giant event. I remember how excited we all were at school yeah. for the NXE. And like the, the party system on the NXE was amazing. Yeah. And avatars. Avatars, which, which didn't work, but oh are well. somehow still, like, if you, you dig deep and, like, say a dark, like, antediluvian prayer while you're make, using your Xbox One, you can still find the avatars lurking within the dark heart of that system somewhere. You can. Um, My avatar still looks the exact same as the day I fucking made it. I know, it's great. Mine mostly does. I've put a Master Chief helmet on him. Yeah, I gave him a couple of toys that I unlocked across okay. the way, but the nice. core, the core man, is himself. Awesome. Uh, and then we had the final one, which was to me by far the worst, which the Metro, the, the Metro the one. Case. Yeah, the Windows Eight barf. The, you mean the the advertising? Just yeah. all the commercial box. Yeah, man. Yeah, like that. Okay. That one was a bit rough. That one was really rough. But the NXE was pretty brilliant. And yeah. The NXE was really cool. I mean, you look back on it now, there were certainly some things I think we would call clunky. But in trying to do as much as it was doing at the time, like, oh, man, my God. And I really do think, ironically, whoever designed the PS4 UI took way more from the 360 than the Xbox One did. Yeah, that actually, that's a really good point that, like, the NXE does look... Like, it, like the PS4 UI is, in a lot of ways, a mix between the Xbox 360 NXE and the cross-media bar for the PS3. Yeah, just that yeah. idea of it's all going to be there. It's going to be simple and as accessible as we can make it with the fewest amount of, you know, least amount of garbage. Yeah. And the PS4, I think, took that to another level. But it really does feel like the 360 ethos, which were completely dropped in the initial version of the Xbox One, they've, they've improved it. The current UI is much better, although I still think it's, it's messy and it's always going to be. They're never going to fully fix that because it's yeah. kind of baked in. Um, and I, I kind of want to ask that question. Like, the 360 was such this special moment in time. It did so many special things that we've touched on. And by the end, it felt like some of that had fallen off a little bit. And the Xbox One has not really recaptured that. And in the yeah. ways it's trying to, things like Halo 5 felt like Halo done wrong in some ways. Oh, yes. And Gears of War 4... Looks like it'll probably be good, but I also wonder if the time for Gears of War has just passed. It feels I like a bygone so, yeah. era. And is I mean, the fact that you're playing is like Marcus Phoenix's son in this one. Yeah, like that's you're making you're making the wrong moves. But just uh, is is the time of Xbox in that form just kind of gone at this point? Do you think? I think so. Like, I mean, it's why I popped on the PS4 train and kind of never looked back. You know, like it's. Because it's weird. It's like I am. I am bathing so hard in the nostalgia right now, just thinking about like with like the, the different UIs and like the NXE and like all my memories of playing Halo Wars three v three and Halo three online a lot. It's like that was like the NXE days compared to like the Dead Rising Gears of War, which is the Blade days. And then, but then when I'm thinking of what were the games I played all the time with the Metro UI, like what are my memories of like that? It's like kind of like I know that like. Well, yeah, I played, like, Halo 4 on it. I know that, like, that was, like, Grand Theft Auto 5. It's like, I know there are games that I played, like, very good games that are played, like, during the Metro days of the yeah. Xbox 360. But none of it is, like, it doesn't leap out at me as, like, when I'm thinking about, man, that NXE, like, that thing was crazy and weird looking. And I can vividly recall the back of the Halo 3 background image I had the yep. entire time I had the NXE and all the weird, like background like when you went on the avatar screen and the weird like they would have like a ghost and stuff like hanging out behind the avatars like i can remember that stuff so vividly like i'm trying to recall specific things about the metro ui and i kind of just can't and it's like a lot of that of like in general 
I think like Microsoft had a turning point with with when Don Matrix sort of took over with like all the Connect stuff that like just like did not work. Like it's just like Microsoft as a direction with like their Xbox team went in the wrong direction and they like started leaning to that direction harder and harder. That's why I had my summer of PS3 that I very much enjoyed with Tokyo Jungle and Journey and all the rest. And then eventually the PS4 comes out and it's like, well, I'm going to get the PS4 because the, the announcement for the Xbox One was not good. And it's like, it was just Microsoft leaning into their weird direction they were going with the Connect and the media stuff harder than ever before. And it's like, and it just completely broke me of it. And then it's like a huge bummer that then it's like eventually like Matrick leaves to go to fucking Zynga I think he went to and then Phil Spencer comes in as the head of Xbox and like that dude has done an incredible job of turning that shit back around no, and, and I, like like bringing back the Xbox love in a way that like I really admire but it's like that chord was kind of cut for me and I love the Xbox One I don't want to be too down on it I think it's no, got a yeah. lot of great stuff I've had so much fun on my Xbox One it is still for like community gaming that's where I go because that's where my community kind of is and I like it, and there's a lot of good things to recommend. I would, I would, without hesitation, say if you want to buy an Xbox One, you should. I'd yeah. probably say the PS4 is the smarter purchase overall, but it's not like you will suffer with doing one or over the other, like immensely. Yeah. You know, if like if you were to buy the Wii U as your only console this generation yeah, or something. That was, that'd be um, an interesting move. Yeah, but like, uh, but it still it doesn't have that same sense of cohesive identity. That the 360 did and that the PS4 has for me now. Yeah, it definitely has for me. So, yeah, and I think there's some things the Xbox One does very well. I We haven't talked about achievements yet. Yeah. And I like trophies. I like the way the PS4 handles trophies. Trophies got nothing on achievements. The way achievements are handled to this day is superior. It is a brilliant idea that was brilliantly executed at the start. The Xbox One only improved all of that side of stuff. Yeah. And and that's the one part of the Xbox's identity that still feels so strong that when you get those achievement pops and now they've got these great little boxes that like actually give you the achievement description when it comes up and it's it's so cool because you can see exactly what you got there. All of that feels like really tight and smart still. And and that's when in those moments it feels like I'm playing Xbox, damn it. Yeah. It's like, man, like I'm thinking about like the gradual improvement on the achievement tech over the years with Xbox 360 where it's like back in the early days every time like you get, if you like got a bunch of achievements in a row, like they would just all pop like one after the other and with like this long chain and it was maddening and would block up if you were getting messages and game invites and right. stuff. And then eventually, I think it was around the NXT, there was like this huge innovation of like Maybe if you've got, like, three achievements at the same time, maybe you just have one pop-up that says, Hey, you unlocked three achievements. And then if I press the guide button, I get to go to my achievement screen and see what three achievements I got. It was stuff like that of, like, they like the achievement stuff was always better because, I mean, the trophy stuff wasn't even on the PS3 at launch. And but so, like, even when PS3 hopped on that and Sony hopped on that train... Like, they still, like, at day one didn't have it where the achievements were. And then achievements just kept on, like pushing harder and harder and harder on the same concept and doing better and better and better where it's like I like the trophies quite a bit on PS4 like I have no problem with them but they've I, gotten to a very good place yeah but I don't have the 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 love for them that I did for achievements back in the day and I think part of that is just like the whole concept is like I, I like it I don't want it to go away certainly at all like I appreciate that it's there but it doesn't have the pull that it once did but then also like I just think like there are some things about like the presentation of achievements and stuff like that that was always superior on Xbox. Yeah, and achievements in general, just this 
brilliant, brilliant idea yeah. that is here. Like, that is a game changer that will be here forever. That's one of those genies you can't put back in the bottle. Yeah. Like, I, it's one of the things that when I play the Wii U or the 3DS, yeah. I am most conscious of is that I don't have achievements. That's exactly what I was going to say. That it's like, it still seems crazy to me that Nintendo has not got on. Because the Wii U came out in 2012, man. Like, trophies were like a thing, I think, in like 2008 was when PS3 first introduced them. Like, they were around for quite a while. And it's like, still Nintendo didn't do like whatever they would do like for their version of it. Where like Nintendo games like need them. More than most, like, Sony and Microsoft exclusives yeah, do. Yeah, I would be way more into it on Nintendo than I would yeah, ever like, be on a... Mario games are, like, half about fucking getting collectibles. Like, I would... Like, Legend of Zelda games are made... Like, I want an achievement for getting all the golden sculptulas in the Ocarina of Time. I want an achievement for finding all the fucking heart pieces. It's like, the kind of stuff... Give you... it to me. I want my big Goron sword achievement for Ocarina of Time. There is so much cool shit in Ocarina... That like was like weird little side stuff that you didn't have to do, but was really cool if you did. And that is what achievements and trophies are made to do to like highlight and incentivize you exploring other ways of playing your game. I figured out what they could call them. What? Megasms. And your me instead of like a pop up with like a little bubble, it would be your me pops up on the screen with an O face, and and that's how you, I, you've gotten a megasm. Now I just want you to imagine my me's. <laughs> oh God. That that Lovecraftian horror popping up on your screen, <laughs> cry. So yes, I, I yeah, that sounds exactly like something that that Nintendo, Nintendo would do. do. Yeah, like yes. Nintendo's got that like hard edge. They got that punk flavor. I'm just thinking it would be something me related. The me's somehow aren't going away. Yeah, those plasticky monsters. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this has been a good look back on the Xbox 360. Yeah, pour one out for a fallen comrade. Yeah. I mean, I almost thought, should we do something like favorite game? But that's impossible. There's too many. Maybe Halo 3. It's it's Halo 3, and then for number two, it's like a 30-way tie. Yeah, most hated game is Sonic 2006. We already Definitely. talked about the big hits. Yep. So uh, pour one out. Maybe go play a little. Uh, maybe I'll go home and play my a 360 game on the Xbox One, because that's what I've actually got hooked in. <laughs> Yeah, but I, you know what? I'll say this. I, it's my favorite thing about the Xbox One now is because of the 360 backwards compatibility. Whenever you launch a 360 game, it does the opening 360 thing. Yeah, my favorite thing. Really in the world. good. Love it. Really good. Boot up animations. They've gone away. Maybe someday they'll come back. <laughs>